All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode of Worthy, we are going to be talking about the 1962 Best Picture winner, Lawrence of Arabia, the David Lean epic starring Peter O'Toole, Alec Guinness, uh, who else? Anthony Quinn, Omar Sharif, Jose Farrell, just like all these amazing actors. And it takes place in this desert. It's expansive. The cinematography is so wide. It tells this great epic tale. But we don't know what genre it is. Me and John were going back and forth, and it's kind of hard to pinpoint what this movie is and how you do define it, how it gets categorized because of so many different ways it does go within its story. So, John, your initial thoughts on the your approach of watching this film and also your takeaways in terms of the genre uh, and how you're kind of deciding how to categorize it. So we're 35 episodes in. I think we've tried and successfully if i'm not wrong made an intro that basically summarizes a different topic for every episode i don't think we've really repeated anything so it's gotten harder and harder as we've gone along to like find a new topic to like break it down to like kind of relate it to the film but also overall maybe expand it more to the genre or to the industry in itself so it was a struggle because first we were like oh it could be about epics because this is definitely a film that you could describe as an epic traveling across the desert and watching our character go on such a big large journey and and be so changed by the end of it and I was getting to the point where I was really struggling to kind of figure out how to identify this and I recognized the story in itself of uh, you know a character who it joins a different world kind of appreciates that world and is either changed by it for the good or for the bad uh, and kind of learns about that culture and kind of like assimilates to that culture. So in my mind, I, I saw this film as like a film about assimilation and, and kind of learning to love a different world, a different culture and kind of breaking that all down. It made me think of like, what is that? Like how many films are about assimilation? Uh, and I just came up with this term assimilation cinema. And I was trying to figure out like if this is a genre, if this is like something that I can kind of trace back and I really couldn't find much about assimilation in film. Everything that was coming up was about uh, immigrants and immigration and and learning to kind of assimilate to the U.S. and America's kind of uh, language and world. But I couldn't figure out like a genre of what this is. But I thought of films like Apocalypse Now and Avatar and Dances with Wolves and a film that I love, I think from the 80s or late 70s called Enemy Mine. Uh, which is about like a in the future a, a star pilot kind of crashes on a planet and he's fighting this enemy but the enemy also crashes on this planet and they're stuck there basically right and he must learn to uh, appreciate this culture and this different weird alien race and I, I've always loved those kinds of films like films where characters get so lost they kind of lose their identity and they become 
something new and they like appreciate so much more about this culture or this group of people and or this land like in the case of Lawrence of Arabia T Lawrence completely changes throughout this movie and that's what makes this film so entertaining but it made it so hard to kind of identify what kind of film this is yes you could say this is part war film it's part drama it's uh it's not melodrama in a way there's not really a family or domestic life but it's really hard to pinpoint this and i think that's why people use that huge term as just listing it as an epic so ben what what do you think about lawrence of arabia do you, would you call this an epic film is there any other genre that you would kind of classify Lawrence of Arabia in? I really do like that phrase, assimilation cinema. And I think that's because it's a sign of a good filmmaker if you are so you know engrossed and, and taken in by the film and you feel like you can believe the history, you know the environment, it it, it hits you at, at an emotional level and, and, and it hits you when you think about it and you're taking it all in. And I think that that's one of the, the signs of this movie being like a great movie, an epic movie because it makes reality into fantasy. And I want to get into this more when we get into the big discussion about the movie, but this whole idea or this watching this movie for me and the ideas that I was getting out of it and how I felt it felt similar to you know my favorite movie Lord of the Rings in so many ways. It was then hit me I was like, "Wait, should I be thinking about this as fantasy because this is historical?" And I think just the idea, again, that David Lean created such a beautiful piece of art that makes you, that, that brings you into the world is fascinating and, and I appreciate it a lot. So I, re- I like the term assimilation cinema when talking about uh, this movie and, and categorizing it and giving it a genre. So, and I think that this also connects, again, we're, we're going to talk about it more and as you brought it up, how Lawrence changes throughout the film, what his identity is. It's similar to Lean's uh, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, which we talked about uh, like five episodes ago, which won in 57. And that dealt with Alec Guinness, who is also in Lawrence of Arabia. He was battling back and forth with his duty and uh, to the English Army, but then also helping the Japanese and building this bridge and, and connecting all of it. And it's in the same vein, like both characters trying to figure out who they're truly aligned for. But the thing with Lawrence in this movie is that he there like he believes in the people he actually wants to be with them whereas Alec Guinness and Bridge on the River Kwai was uh you know was forced in there as a prisoner so there's a lot that you can compare between the two and and it's I, I think Lean's signature so why don't we answer this age-old question John is Lawrence of Arabia worthy of the best picture award of 1962 Lawrence of Arabia. The story of T.E. Lawrence, the English officer who successfully united and led the diverse, often wearing, Arab tribes during World War I in order to fight the Turks. In 1935, Lawrence dies in a motorcycle accident. At his memorial service at St. Paul's Cathedral, a reporter tries, with little success, to gain insights into the remarkable, enigmatic man from those who knew him. The story then moves back to the First World War. Lawrence is a misfit British Army lieutenant 
who is notable for his insolence and education. Over the objections of General Murray, Mr. Dryden of the Arab Bureau sends him to assess the prospects of Prince Faisal in his revolt against the Turks. On the journey, his Bedouin guide, Tafas, is killed by Sharif Ali for drinking from his well without permission. Lawrence later meets Colonel Brighton, who orders him to keep quiet, make his assessment, and leave. Lawrence ignores Brighton's orders when he meets Faisal. His outspokenness piques the prince's interest. Brighton advises Faisal to retreat after a major defeat, but Lawrence proposes a daring surprise attack on Aqaba. Its capture would provide a port from which the British could offload much-needed supplies. The town is strongly fortified against a naval assault, but only lightly defended on the landward side. He convinces Faisal to provide 50 men, led by a pessimistic Sharif Ali. The teenage orphans Daoud and Faraj attach themselves to Lawrence as servants. They cross the Nefid Desert, considered impassable even by the Bedouins, and travel day and night on the last stage to reach water. One of Ali's men, Gassim, succumbs to fatigue and falls off his camel unnoticed during the night. When Lawrence discovers him missing, he turns back and rescues Gassim, and Sharif Ali is won over. Lawrence persuades Aouda Abu Tayy, the leader of the powerful local Hawitat tribe, to turn against the Turks. Lawrence's scheme is almost derailed when one of Ali's men kills one of Aouda's men because of a blood feud. Since retaliation by the Hawitat would shatter the fragile alliance, Lawrence declares that he will execute the murder himself. Lawrence is then stunned to discover that the culprit is Gassim, the man he risked his own life to save, but Lawrence shoots him anyway. The next morning, the Arabs overrun the Turkish garrison. Lawrence heads to Cairo to inform Dryden and the new commander, General Allenby, of his victory. While crossing the Sinai Desert, Daoud dies when he stumbles into quicksand. Although his report of Aqaba's capture is initially disbelieved, Lawrence is promoted to major and given arms and money for the Arabs. He is deeply disturbed and confesses that he enjoyed executing Gassim, but Allenby brushes aside his qualms. Lawrence asks Allenby whether this is the basis for the Arabs' suspicion that the British have designs on Arabia. When pressed, Allenby states that there is none. Lawrence launches a guerrilla war by blowing up trains and harassing the Turks at every turn. An American war correspondent, Jackson Bentley, publicizes Lawrence's exploits and makes him famous. On one raid, Farage is badly injured. Unwilling to leave him to be tortured by the enemy, Lawrence reluctantly shoots him dead and then flees. When Lawrence scouts the enemy-held city of Dara with Ali, he is taken, along with several other Arab residents, to the Turkish Bay. Lawrence is stripped and prodded. Then, for striking out at the bay, he is severely flogged before he's thrown into the streets, where Ali comes to his aid. The experience leaves Lawrence and his identity shaken. He returns to the British headquarters in Cairo, but does not fit in. A short time later in Jerusalem, General Allenby urges him to support the big push on Damascus. Lawrence hesitates to return, but finally relents. Lawrence recruits an army that is motivated more by money than by the Arab cause. They cite a column of retreating Turkish soldiers who have just massacred the residents of Tafas. One of Lawrence's men is from Tafas and demands no prisoners. When Lawrence hesitates, the man charges the Turks alone and is killed. Lawrence takes up the dead man's battle cry. The result is a slaughter in which Lawrence himself participates despite Ali's protests. He regrets his actions thereafter. Lawrence's men take Damascus ahead of Allenby's forces. The Arabs set up a council to administer the city, 
but the British cut off access to the public utilities, leaving the desert tribesmen to debate how to maintain the occupation. Despite Lawrence's efforts, they bicker constantly and soon abandon most of the city to the British. Lawrence is promoted to colonel and immediately ordered back to Britain as his usefulness to both Faisal and the British is at an end. As he leaves the city, his automobile is passed by a motorcyclist who leaves a trail of dust in his wake. Lawrence of Arabia was directed by David Lean, written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson, produced by David Lean and Sam Spiegel, music by Maurice Jarre, cinematography by Freddie Young, film editing by Anne V. Coates, casting by Maud Spector, production design by John Box, art direction by John Stoll and Anthony Masters, and costume design by Phyllis Dalton. Lawrence of Arabia stars Peter O'Toole as Lawrence, Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal, Anthony Quinn as Aouda Abu Tayy, Jack Hawkins as General Allenby, Omar Sharif as Sharif Ali, Jose Ferrer as Turkish Bey, Anthony Quayle as Colonel Brighton, Claude Rains as Mr. Dryden, Arthur Kennedy as Jackson Bentley, Donald Wolfett as General Murray, Michael Ray as Farage, and John Demesh as Dowd. So it is written, John. <laughs> Nothing is written. Uh, yeah, Lawrence of Arabia. This is, first off, I guess, um, what did you think Lawrence of Arabia was about? Any? Uh, did you know anything about the movie? <laughs> did you know it, uh, like what it looked like? Like anything at all? Yeah, I definitely the iconic shot of the camel you know, walking across the horizon. I knew it was about a British white man who kind of goes into the desert. I kind of assumed it was kind of similar to kind of dances with wolves and that kind of vibe of that assimilation cinema that I was kind of trying to get to. I, I kind of assumed it was along those lines and I knew it was a very long film and there was a lot of sand that basically summarizes <laughs> my knowledge of the film. What about you? Yeah, I think that what what I knew the most was that Peter O'Toole lost for playing it, and it was like a big deal that he lost. And like, cause he, as cause before I watched it, I was told he gave a great performance, and uh, and I think so that was what stood out to me, knowing it was about the desert, but not really knowing why and what it was. Uh, so I didn't really know too much about it, but yeah, I, it was definitely a lot that your mind can wander to. But then as the movie starts and as you go through it, it and you're kind of like daunted with the idea and the task of, oh my God, this is an almost a four hour movie. I think it's three hours and like 46 minutes in total. And you're thinking, wow, they're like, this is pretty long. Um, and not that I don't like that, but it can definitely 
it's just like a big task to take on and then you get into the story this and it it really like it's pretty smooth you know it doesn't really drag you feel like you're caught up in everything it doesn't seem like it's trying to be smarter like when you like gone with the wind like we i love that movie and we we have a lot of praise for it but because it uses the language and kind of that i don't know that old american southern like way of talking it, it feels like old english in a sense like it's kind of halfway in between whereas this feels you know modern and it feels like you can that you understand the story and it feels and so it makes it easy to like follow along and then all of a sudden you're like two hours into the movie and see intermission and you're like wow that flew by you know and so i don't know if like when like you for you when you watch it and you're thinking about like wow it's watching almost a four-hour movie and like what what that task will be like but also i don't know how you felt coming out of it and how you're able to grasp it and also how you're able to jump back into it especially to talk about it for the podcast well i'm so happy you brought up gone with the wind because that's it's like the movie i go see right away when thinking about this now because they both are considered like two-part films and even i have the 4k steelbook of lawrence of arabia i bought it without even uh seeing the film and i knew we were going to get to it eventually and by physical media yeah it is a gorgeous uh steelbook it's it's so stunning and even that with 4k disc it's on two different discs so halfway through you have to get up and change the disc which i know is probably a a sin to many people or movie watchers but i was like looking at it from that point of view of having it be two parts and when comparing it to gone with the wind gone with the wind really does feel like two separate movies you have her her kind of failure and kind of realizing she needs to be a new person and then becoming that new person in the second part but they really can stand alone almost as like two separate entirely films with lawrence of arabia it just doesn't really feel like that like that you can definitely feel the parts obviously when i'm getting up and changing it and there's the um you know intermission in between and you get the great score from Lawrence of Arabia, which is fucking phenomenal. Absolutely incredible score. But oh, yeah. it just didn't feel like the same split of two different films in the same way that, that I experienced with Gone with the Wind. And that's kind of what the way I've always seen these two films as these big epics that people always talk about, that they're iconic. And it's crazy to think that it's 22 years separating Gone with the Wind from Lawrence of Arabia. But I was really fascinated by how not dissimilar part one and part two is but how similar they are in a way where we have his character change differently in each kind of portion part of the film but what what did you think in particular between part one and part two did you enjoy like one part of the other or do you think they're like interchangeable like gone with the wind like i think i think that it is more one movie than gone with the wind i i think you're accurate with how gone with the wind flows and then that's the difference with this one is it it's such a huge story and when it takes that intermission break that breath where you're like okay like i can i can like think about what i just saw and and what i'm about to see and it feels very it's like a very natural break because you go from planning a war at the end of part one to then the war and revolt actually happen so it i and i think that again it goes back to lean's direction to it just how smooth he was able to transition everything to carry everything throughout the film and I think that, yeah, it is more like one cohesive film. And it's, I think it's actually a minute longer than Come With the Wind. That's funny. Which is kind of petty when you think about it. Uh-huh. But for me, like, you know, watching it again, I guess I had an easier time watching it. And then like the third time, like rewatching it for notes and in case I missed stuff, 
uh, that that felt even easier. But I will say, my I guess I'm giving my biggest criticism now of the movie, which is that because I'm watching it at home, because I'm not at a movie theater where this movie should be viewed, I it's hard to sit to do the one sitting, especially you know working a normal job do, you know and not having that much time at night you know especially the the time at night four hours is a lot so i did have to split it up uh for one of my watches and it kind of like brought home that point and that idea that like maybe this is too long but then also i also felt that everything was necessary for the film and knowing that there was a restoration of the movie and they took out like 15 minutes of it and then 12 years later, I think they're like, oh, no, we got to put it back in because of the flow of it. It's all necessary, but then I can understand for someone who isn't into movies like we are, or I shouldn't say like that kind of like, that, that feels like elitist to say, but who isn't into watching, I guess, long movies, you know, it's, it is necessary for the film and it, you can't really take too much away from it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of everything that really is integral. It's just, shows David Lean's filmmaking which is slow and taking your time and letting you as a viewer sink in and relate to Lawrence and, and have his world kind of glazed over you and this beautiful cinematography and it is it is a challenge watch at first I, I think the first time I watched this again it was in two parts because you're exactly right who can watch a four-hour movie who has enough time to even sit down and watch four hours of something anything even if it's as great as Lawrence of Arabia it's Hard to find that kind of time, let alone watching it twice. And it really developed a lot more for me the second time. I think it, this film felt very like Shakespearean to me when I first watched it. There's a lot of characters. I think a lot of Shakespeare is about like, you know, conflicts with two different parties trying to like relate to, to the one side of the other. And then usually a person who's the, the intermediate, the mediator between these two parties um, and maybe I'm just thinking of Romeo and Juliet in particular, but I, I feel like there's a trend of that with Shakespeare and we have some of the language and, and a lot of the aspect of war, it, like kind of Romans and relating that to uh, Shakespearean as well. But it took a little bit like a, a Shakespeare work did for me, um, even like Hamlet in 1948 that we spoke about. It, it took a little bit to kind of get into the characters. I think a big part of that is Lawrence. He's such a weird character. And at first watching the film, I'm like, Peter O'Toole is is not giving this amazing performance, which everyone talks about. They talk about this transcendent performance and how this film took two years to make and how he was really, really Lawrence. He became this character. But when you first watch it, he, he's so weird, out there, over the top, extremely expressive with his blue, bright eyes. That it was almost like jarring to me to watch this, where I'm like, this guy is so bizarre. Like, what is going on with this, with this actor? And I thought it was much more of like the performance, let alone the character. Until I then got like a second viewing, where I'm like, this is Lawrence. Like, this is just that character. It's it's not just his weird performance or like him as an actor. And you seeing his oddities as an actor come through his performance, much like. <laughs> Al Guinness, which we will get to his his portrayal as the prince. I felt like he really was this character and we got to see this character change so much throughout this film. And it, it was really a character piece that's inside of this four hour epic, which is so bizarre is not what I thought this movie was at all. 
but I really love Peter O'Toole's performance the second way, second through, and I think it was, it wasn't Spielberg, because I, I want to get to Spielberg's thoughts on this film, because he has some great thoughts, but it was Scorsese that I watched a little interview about this film, and he described the the overall plot and story and the way the screenplay is developed that the beginning is obviously the end of his life, right? So we're opening this up and we're ending it right away. We're ending this character that we're going to see his whole journey and we're just ending it in a quick motorcycle death. And then the film ends in such an open-ended way, right? And I feel like that's the same way with part one and two. You would expect the war to go on, uh, Aquaba gets captured, and then we end this first half and then we get to the second half. But it's not. It takes time. We're talking about ammunitions. Like, it's slower than what you would expect from a two-part film at points. But I thought that was really interesting, the way the film kind of just ends leaving you with Lawrence and trying to put you in Lawrence's head of what does his motorcycle mean? What does the truck driving by mean? Why does he not understand the word even home at the very end? So what did you think of this overall structure of the film? Not just part one and part two, but the way Scorsese defined it is like an open-ended film, a film that kind of just continues to go on and on. And that's not just a comment on the runtime. That's a comment on the structure of opening the film with the ending and then having the end of the film not really be the end of Lawrence's life. So how'd you feel about the overall structure of the, the film? It's Citizen Kane. <laughs> I mean, and and that's not a criticism of it, but that's kind of the inspiration I think that it, it took from it. And, and using Citizen Kane is, I think, is a perfect model for how to approach this story in this film. Uh, in so I, I think that that's like a fair criticism of it. And I, I, you know, I want to get into about that open endedness in so many different ways. And I think the the to just get into that aspect of it, the story is like a it's a based off a book. It feels like a narrative type of thing. And so, and so it does kind of feel like it goes forever on and on because this is Lawrence's life in Arabia. This is his life now in, in that time. And as you're watching it all unfold. So it's sort of like that debate about the Sopranos. Does it stop? Does it go on? Well, Lawrence, we know it does stop eventually, but his story does go on for a few more years. It does end early for his life but his story goes on and i think that it adds to the mystery of who lawrence is i think a lot of people still don't fully understand who the man truly was and i they've tried to you know critique it to 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 knock him down to lift him up based off of his book uh the seven pillars of wisdom which is what this film is based off of and it's and so to me like that criticism by scorsese is fair but it's also okay for it at the same time to be open-ended for the story to go on again to bring up Lord of the Rings. The story goes on. There is more to life. There is more to the history of it. And I think that when you are talking about histories and that being adapted, that that's like, you can't really give it a perfect ending. You can only just end that story where that story ends, but the life still continues. The moment still continues. It's just in terms of entertainment, it has to end right there. So to kind of end like this topic of rewatching and and the structure of the film, I when I first you know you you talked about who has four hours of their time to watch this movie. <laughs> well, two years ago, uh, we went through a pandemic, and I had four hours of my day not being used for anything else but to watch movies. So uh, I had when I watched the movies, I kept like 
like a little blog i just like wrote like a little google doc about all the movies and this is how i ended my like entry about lawrence of arabia i wrote overall i love the film and would look forward to watching it again it's a lot to take in especially if you are unfamiliar with the events of the arab revolution like me knowing what happens and having been able to experience it i think a second viewing would bring me more pleasure and more positive feelings of the film's second act and that's exactly what happened i felt (laughs) after i watched it i was like oh yeah let me see what i wrote and the fact that two years ago i was like yeah a second viewing of this would be more enjoyable and like the second act does make more sense because knowing how everything unfolds because when i first watched it you're experiencing it all at once and you're kind of like going this way and that with it but knowing the story and having a better overall structure to it uh definitely captured my imagination the second time it made me appreciate the film more and i man there you know when we get to our ratings we'll get to that but i you know it's hard for me to give like such a a a defined review of this movie because there's so much to talk about uh so i think we should move on to like the actual movie itself and talking about it and i to me i want to start out by talking we're like for the scene that's like 40 minutes into the film i think it's the best scene of the movie i think it's one of the coolest entrances in any movie it is like a play unfolding in the most epic and intimate but also grand ways and that is the mirage and sharif ali's entrance at the well uh so john that did you so you knew that shot uh, was because you talked about you knew like the shot of the camel across the sunset but do you know about the mirage shot of ali running in this like black rider on the horizon rushing in yeah that's the it's like one of those iconic shots that maybe like turner classic movies would be showing a a montage before like a film and they'd be like here's a bunch of iconic films and moments and I've definitely seen that, and I've seen you know, Lawrence in his like white robes. Uh, just being a fan of film, but never really seeing this, and never required to watch this in film school. But what an what an incredible scene! I mean, you you skipped over the burning match scene, which I think is a, such a highly talked about moment in this film of of him you know putting the match out with his hand, and that's then like the most like out. film school like talk about thing like oh yeah the burning match i guess that's yeah, why i skipped exactly. over it you know because everyone does talk about it it's everyone so also popular. talks about yeah but everyone yeah. talks about this shot too and in, in this entrance as well but that's more of an editing thing which we'll definitely touch on uh as we go through this absolutely yeah but you're right this is one of the the great scenes in this film and it's our introduction to seeing Lawrence as this young very very smart guy but he's very opinion opinionated and in, in kind of what he believes he's a map maker he's kind of learning to understand this land but it's clear that he's a novice and doesn't really understand where he is what he's up against he's kind of just looking at this is a challenge everything for him is like a a mental challenge just like putting out the match for him right with his fingers like uh, you can do it if you're just strong enough in the mind essentially kind of sums up Lawrence and this is such an interesting way to show his character because we're introduced to this big beautiful world a big booming score it, it's so epic that I just wish I could see this in a theater just purely on how big and grand the cinematography is here but yeah what a great introduction you're you're thinking that this character that is his guide is going to be like a, a very integral character throughout the film and he just gets gunned down so quickly. And it sets the tone for not only the film, but for Lawrence as a person. Everything he thinks is going to happen, every kind of power he thinks he has is kind of gone when he gets to the desert. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that what that scene also does for the audience is it instills fear. You sense the danger that's going on. And I mean, you are born uh, of the nine eleven generation, and I think that there's I'm not you know I'm not Islamophobic, which is like it sucks to have to like say that. But my point is like growing up. You are like in America in the time you were like kind of propaganda, propaganda eyes. You know, you've shown all this propaganda that uh, the people in the Middle East are like bad and that they are scary people. So then the first thing that this movie shown in America shows is a, you know, them shooting each other and death. It's kind of instills that initial fear into you. And it's that mysticism of the movie that you're like, okay, we're in danger now. But then what's peeled away and what Omar Sharif does to the character shows the compassion and the human part of it. And not, you know, yes, he kills, but he also shows that he can be compassionate and he becomes the pacifist. He becomes way more of a pacifist in this story versus Lawrence who does, you know, start to enjoy the murder and start to enjoy the bloodshed, which I think is the critique of how, outsiders and, and white people do look at the middle east and how they fantasize about it so it's again so that gets instilled into you this fear and then it gets kind of like oh you're okay you're safe and then you have just great interaction between omar sharif and peter tool's character and it's that is shakespearean in its own way there's some really great lines and again that like white lens of how Lawrence initially thinks and talks about, uh, you know, Arabs and, and all the tribes. He says, uh, so long as the Arabs fight tribe against tribe, so long they will be a little people, a silly people, greedy, barbarous, and cruel as you are. And then immediately Shreve goes, come, I will take you to Faisal as if to prove that, no, I'm not like that. And let me show you what my people are like. Yeah, shows and expands a lot. And I think the film, I think you people look at it as probably being a lot more offensive than it really is looking back on it. I mean, obviously we're, we're not the end all be all of really confirming whether that's the case or not. And obviously there's still brown face in this film, but it, this film is a lot more complex than just saying like, you know, Arabs are bad. British men are good. And I think a lot of people could look back at this much like you do with Gone with the Wind, even though it's a four hour epic with a lot of detail and information that there's a lot more going on and and a lot more not only under the the surface of the film, but directly in the text here. And I think it's really interesting that his character is he immediately says, like, you're safe, like as a British man here, you can drink from my well. There's like a level of. Uh, it's a, such a modern word, but there's a level of like white privilege of being a British elite and they know what kind of like ammunition and power is behind just even one killing one British soldier and how serious that probably would be for their certain tribe. So it already sets up so much of the world, introduces to us to our character, and, and maybe that was kind of partly why it is hard to get into this film is because we're talking about such big uh, ideas and we're talking about cultures and I, I felt the same way that you kind of expressed is that I didn't really know anything about this I didn't even know this was even based off a true story that's how little I actually knew about this story and in and, and Lawrence as a character and as a historical figure so especially and I think that comes from us being Americans as well as well I think you know maybe if you're a British citizen and you've probably experienced a lot of this a lot of maybe your early history classes would have went into it while 
us being Americans, you know, we're going into the Civil War, the Revolutionary War. We're spending a lot of time with our own history and our own freedoms here that we never really spend time talking about things like this, especially for Americans. I think people look at this as such a non-consequential war because simply the most American thing, we're not involved. So I think it's such an easy thing to just dissociate from. But also, on the other hand, this was such a successful film and such a popular film that clearly Americans love this and they related to this. And even in 1960, when we're 1962, when we're kind of beyond war era, and I guess you could kind of say we're getting close to uh, Vietnam time, but we're kind of been a peace for a long time at this point in America, uh, other than, say, maybe the Korean War as well. But it's interesting that like we kind of related to this film as a society and I think it just goes to how well this film is told how well we're shown into the world of these tribes and how well we get to experience this world through Lawrence and how he tries to struggle himself to see this world and I thought that was just so fascinating the way they kind of build everything up and I feel the same way that you do that it didn't take until my second viewing that I really got the big picture I think there's also so many characters in this film that it's kind of hard to follow who's who, who's in what tribe, how is that tribe related to the prince, or the prince is related to this other tribe. There's just a lot going on, and I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that it's all clearly stated and explained. It's just a lot of information when you first view the film, right? Yeah, it definitely is, and then in terms of doing research about the movie and like, oh, I want to learn and read about the, you know, what happened here. And, and, and as I was doing all of that, I kept thinking, but that's not what this movie is really about. And this movie is not asking you to know this. This movie is asking you just to believe in what it's, it's showing you. And that's where mm-hmm. the part of my fantasy reality becomes fantasy and fantasy becomes reality with this movie because this is like the introduction for a lot of people to what happened in the middle east and when we talk about america's involvement i mean that's the whole point of the character jackson bentley of getting america to believe in it and you know the actual history of all this is like this is just a snowball effect and part of what ends up happening with our own involvement in the middle east is everything that happens here and how and how the British and the whole like disgusting part of what the, you know, what the British army does do and in, in agreement with France is they do kind of take over or they, no, they kind of, they do take over the Middle East and this part of the land and it creates the same exact issues that they were fighting against to begin with. It just looks a little bit better because it's Britain saying, no, 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 we're not here, but really we are here to, you know, be in control and to, have all the power here so you know you i guess it the movie does try to like touch on that and does try to point that out but it doesn't ask you to like know all the specifics it just asks you to know that this is lawrence this is sharif ali this is faisal and their kind of big picture involvement yeah i'm Uh, glad you brought up the the fantasy aspect of it because spielberg is a huge fan of this movie is one of his favorite films of all time i think and i watched a little kind of I don't know where it came from to be honest but it was him just talking about the film and he honestly gushed and gushed over how great this film how much he loved the score and how he kept listening to it on repeat and definitely inspired him I think you could look at a lot of different 
Spielberg film. And I mean, see, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Is yeah, you can see completely rips from this. <laughs> yeah, you can see a lot. Even yeah, you can see a lot definitely without going down that rabbit hole. But he talked specifically about some people's criticisms about uh, the way you described it as a, as a fantasy, as looking at this film as as a textbook when film shouldn't always be that. Uh, he also then related it to being like a Jew if someone made a film about the Holocaust and it was like severely inaccurate and like how how damaging something like that could be but he didn't have the same perspective on Lawrence of Arabia to be like I can't really deem this as offensive because I'm not really a part of that culture and that's a really long-winded way of explaining the way he said it he said it like such a small little comment but I was curious about that kind of relationship that Spielberg had that he would find it very offensive if someone was making up these like fantasy stories about say the Holocaust a real life event filled with a lot of death and tragedy and I think you also see that with Lawrence of Arabia so tell me Ben more about why you thought this film was a like a, a fantasy film in some ways I like you bring up that point by Spielberg and we're going to have like so many episodes in between when we do get to Chandler's list and that approach, because it that's fascinating discussion because it, of the perspective that it's told from. Um, I don't know if you've seen Schindler's list. I don't want to get into that whole discussion, but uh, yeah, that, that I want to say that discussion for when we do get to talk about Schindler's list, but how I see this movie as a fantasy is because, because of how it, it makes me be, like, know the culture and it makes me know how, how everything is lived how it's done i can feel it i can feel how the hariths and the howie tots and and how their cultures work i mean when uh when they cross the nephod and they and auda is you know just like come come to my tribe come come to where my people are his entire like village like does this like i don't know if it's ceremonial or just like the way of greeting but like all the men ride on their camels and horses to like greet them and like running past them and these like formations that go in you know in and around them and that was like feels very medieval feels very like oh that's how i could totally see the road the rohirrim you know it you know coming around aragon legos and gimli in two towers and like that felt and that's fantasy but this is real like this has to have been based on something right David Lean had to have seen or known or learned about how the Bedouins work and, and, and how that culture is. And, you know, there's this scene in the beginning when uh, Lawrence and Colonel Breitner and Faisal's 10 and Lawrence can tell like how to sit comfortably uh, on the ground, leaning against these, like uh, the, you know, these fur coats and you know blankets, whereas Brighton's sitting like straight leg down. He's completely uncomfortable and that's where we're talking about assimilation cinema and how it completely captures your imagination and makes you believe that it's real and that that's where the fantasy comes in. And so it, it re it, and the story again is like a book. And one of the technical things about it that I don't know if you picked up on this, but every pan in this movie, every camera movement is mostly left to right. And because it's left to right, it makes you it's the English way is reading left to right. But in these Bedouin tribes in the Middle East, they go right to left. So it, it, it kind of mind fucks you. And it, again, like that is the lens of like, this is a, an English tale about the Middle East. This is our, this is the white view in lens of this story. And, and so when you're reading from left to right, while you're visualizing left to right, while 
the fantasy is there and that becomes so real. That's why it, that's why the fantasy aspect, and that's why Spielberg probably agrees with that point, that sentiment that this movie goes beyond just like the history that's based on. It's just, it's supposed to just be this grand story. I think the text of the film clearly states that as well. I think with the whole opening and having his funeral and having characters physically like ask who was Lawrence, like who was this guy? And I think just having a director or writers, a, a creator set this up for us in a way that's already questioning who even our protagonist is also questions is the story that we're following even that accurate is what's happening on screen accurate to what actually happened in real life and is that really up for you to decide is it up for the the storyteller to kind of accurately show that or is it up for you to put the research in for you to put the time in i think the film asks a lot of the viewer to really open up your mind and say like how how do you feel about Lawrence? Who who is he as a person to you? And we don't all have to agree. Yeah. And I think that that point idea is, it it relates so well to the line of nothing is written. What, what is written? What, you know, history is written, but you can also, and this is like a personal thing that I like to like annoy people with is nothing is something you know so if nothing is written that means something there's just something that is written that's kind of lawrence's thing when he saves kasima out of the desert it is written it's something that there is history there is a tale to be told and i you know and it's talking about now like that line stands out even more like that this story that it does what it does want to give you something it does want to make you believe in what the story is and, and the imagination that lean is putting into the, the film, the art itself. And I think lean is really, obviously we have the amazing score and the incredible writing here, but lean really gives that authentic style, that authentic feeling of this world. And I think a lot of the research that we saw and a lot of, you know, the classic IMDb facts is, about the struggles, about how Peter O'Toole was injured so much, about how it took yeah. so long for this movie to be made. It took two years, basically, for this film to be filmed entirely, and how even there was a scene that Peter O'Toole was a year difference in age. And uh, when he finishes the scene, he's like a year older entirely. So there's a lot talked about behind the scenes, but I think there's so much praise that you can give to David Lean purely on the way he shows us this world. And it's not just the writing, it's a lot with the cinematography and the blocking is opening us to to this world obviously these grand shots kind of having you just wash away into the sand much like dune and i think there's a lot of connections we could probably make to (laughs) not just the films but also the books and how this was maybe inspired uh or how the book was maybe inspired by this film but I found it so interesting the way he just is so earnest and honest in the way he shows us this world. You know, always having things not on a set but on location. And I joked with Ben, I think when we were talking about this film a couple days ago, is that David Lean was just making films to go on vacation to certain locations around the world. Like he did uh, a film to be in the jungle with Bridge on the River Kwai. He did Dr. Zhivago to be in Russia and be in a winter snowy land. So I found a funny trend with him making films in just different locations and how this film is just a love letter to the desert and to Arabia as, as a location. So what did you take away from that, Ben? 
Yeah, I mean, Lean takes humongous risks. I mean, and oh, man, I, I I know I, I keep on comparing the two, but like Lord of the Rings, and that took you know two three years to film, and the amount of of blood, sweat, and tears, and the reality that Peter Jackson was was creating in those movies is exactly what David Lean was doing. David Lean wanted everything thing to be authentic to be caught you know on the camera on the film as is and that is the you know that is what the authenticity that he brings to the movie and to his, his direction for the film it is incredible and then when we talk about the cinematography i mean i, I you know i have the movie playing in front of me and i think this is the first time i've ever had the movie itself playing as we do the discussion and just looking there's just like this wide shot of the sand dunes and the mountains and just mile it has to be like like at least 20 30 miles of depth that you're able to capture because of the desert itself on film that is just remarkable and the you know they're you know reading about and researching the movie it's like they would spend just one day getting one shot I mean, can you imagine in college if we only spent one day on one shot of a movie, we would be <laughs> fucked. We would have been. Yeah, the we would been movie so would screwed. never be made. Yeah, yeah it, w- it would have been like, oh, is the whole thing supposed to be one shot? <laughs> and <laughs> you know, I, in Spielberg, when he talks about the movie, and you know, and he got to remaster it, and he, uh, I don't know, I, we probably watched the same interview, but he said that he got to show David Lean the remaster and Lean walked him through step by step everything that happened in each shot i mean i couldn't imagine the conversations that was had the knowledge you know that you know four hours probably more if they were stopping the movie at all that just to hear david lean like tell you and break everything down was been incredible and you know these shots are well constructed but yeah but but spielberg my getting back to my point is that spielberg asked him he's like what about second takes for these camels i'm looking at it right now and they would have to literally clean the desert and clean the sand of these <laughs> of these camel prints just to get the second shot or maybe not even get it at all and they nailed it on the first try so the the pain and, and the time and effort that went into making this film is incredible and i think that that's the achievement and that's what's remarkable about what lean was able to accomplish and why we should praise it like we are you know yeah but but the yeah the cinematography is just incredible and i want to ask you is like is this the best cinematography we've seen so far is this like where does this rank even for you personally does this rank highly do you do you because i mean i think this is pretty incredible i think it's pretty hard to not call it one of the best shot films you know, ever definitely yeah yeah i would probably say ever yeah i don't think it's that crazy to say best film shot ever not even just on our best picture list or all the best picture winners but yeah ever i think that's that's a fair assessment to make i don't know you don't think the greatest show on earth kind of competes <laughs> with this at all with all the cgi yeah no yeah i mean i'll give it the one my one criticism <laughs> of the cinematography is the day for night shots there's a lot of shadows in those night shots that's that's really interesting you brought that up too because i was thinking about well one it looks amazing i mean oh, it's yeah. believable that it's night it's just the shadows that are like distracting but you kind of forget about that and look past that and i i related that recently to nope which filmed a lot of day for night recently and that was the same exact thing like we still haven't gotten past perfect like perfectly creating that or within that film you perfectly see shadows and you're like you would not be seeing shadows at night and it's the same thing with here but I think because we're in a desert you see less of that like you see maybe camel shadows you see some people's shadows but it's not as distracting have you ever been in the desert 
No, I don't think so. Maybe Arizona, but that's not the same kind of desert. (laughs) I've been, I went to Israel um, Mm -hmm. and I was in, oh man, what, what's the desert? I forget the name of the desert, but we went into the desert as part of our birthright trip and actually stayed overnight with a Bedouin tribe. It was like a kind of a commercialized Bedouin tribe. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you, you can tell like a little bit was put on, but it, I slept in like the tents and, you know, drank the tea and, and, and being out in the desert, it was incredible. It really, I mean, we were seeing the night sky. Like I've never seen the night sky before the clarity though. It does feel clean. It feels devoid of any pollution there. And I think that when you look at it, you think of it as a wasteland, but really you're just seeing that this is nature untouched and just in a hot climate, you know? And, there's something that there and Lawrence says that, that it is clean, that there's something that's serene and peaceful about it. And I think that's one of the things that in the beginning of the film that they question about the, about the Arabs and, and all the tribes is, well, why would you want to be in the desert? And I think Faisal even says like, we do like trees and the green, but then being in the desert, you know, is home. And, and I can, and just the imagination and, and that is also a fantasy because like we're not living in the desert. I was thinking about that today, walking in New York city. And I was like, holy shit, the difference between being in the city with a fast movement, electricity, and then nothing in the desert besides just nature and the basics just to survive that and exist in mm-hmm. that environment is it's wild to like compare the two. Yeah. And so I that, think that- yeah, but yeah, but that is like again like buys into the fantasy reality reality fantasy thing that I get from this movie. Yeah, I I definitely get a lot of that and just showing how vast it is, especially when we get to the second half where we're having some more battles, but we're having scenes where they're blowing up trains and they're like looting the trains and how even an umbrella that's looted from a train is like a sacred item. Like everything that they're pulling is like, we've never seen a clock here. Like this is like so rare than the desert that we can have a huge clock. Like it's, it's really fascinating to see how much they like praise these small everyday items. Yeah. I, I think that I'm one that's like Anthony Quinn's just performance, which I don't think we give enough praise to the supporting cast. And, you know, we talk about the, the white, the, the brown face of Alec Guinness and then there's like this like rumored story <laughs> that like when people did see Alec Guinness, they thought he was Prince Faisal. That's which, such bullshit. Yeah, such I mean like bullshit. I want to. Part of me wants to be like, "Gee, Willikers, <laughs> Mister, that's so true. That must have happened that everyone <laughs> thought he was Prince Faisal." But then that is also such like, bullshit. yeah, it's such bullshit. And it's it is wrong, but then it it's so good. Anthony Quinn is so good <laughs> as Oda, and then. You know, Omar, oh man, can we just talk about Omar Sharif for like, you know, the next like rest of the podcast? Because that man, that role and that performance is so good. I don't think we, I mean, we'll talk about it when we can talk about the Oscars, but he was just robbed because he is so good. We talk about the entrance. He's so good. He's so good at, at pairing and, and battling with Peter O'Toole in this. And he was an unknown star and just to step into this and, and this role and, Oh, and he's beautiful. He is so freaking beautiful. That guy. I love the mustache. <laughs> he. Oh, it's it's such a great role, and it's it commands authority, commands respect, but it, it's so subtle, and it, and it, you can feel there's a softness to him, and you want to just see a movie of that character, and you wanted more of that, and I kind of wish, 
like and the way the movie does end because they kind of just all go their separate ways you wish that like oh man what if they did come back together like what if and i don't I don't think he is, but what if, you know, they did have an older Trifali at the funeral type of thing and, and what that would have been like. So mm-hmm. just Omar, like what what are your thoughts on, on Omar Sharif and, and the rest of the cast? But yeah, just Sharif is incredible to me. <laughs> yeah, he's a very handsome man. I do agree. But I think a lot of it comes from obviously it's a great performance, but it's from his character and just how interesting he is of a character because he's this stern man that Lawrence kind of breaks down. And by the end of the film, we're seeing him, he's like spun up in all the bullshit that Lawrence has basically convinced his men of. And in a way, people look at Lawrence more than they do about his character by Sharif. Uh, by the end, they're just looking only and praising him, basically. And he's so caught up in it that he's also like, Lawrence, you can't leave now. Like all the things that you've said, like you don't have to be like you can be one of us while being white he doesn't understand why he's made this change all of a sudden and it's such an interesting character to see we're following this lead character who's just letting people down constantly he's letting everyone down basically and he just doesn't really see that he doesn't understand or he just doesn't care which is so fascinating and it's just painful to have Sharif there on the other end just trying to like navigate this while trying to basically tame Lawrence while also very inspired by Lawrence and inspired by his wisdom that he's kind of passed on to him and his people. But yeah, what an amazing actor and performer and what an incredible performance to have. And he's there maybe almost as much as Lawrence. I mean, he doesn't have those side character, like the side scenes in the beginning, but he's there prominently and he, he does have such a screen presence. I love it. Yeah. It it is such a great performance and, you know, and, and one of the most beautiful moments and we talk about, you know, who you are and the identity is he kind of questions Lawrence and he is like, well, what about your father, your mother? You know, why, you know, your father's last name is Chapman, but you're Lawrence. How does that work? And the actual history of T. Lawrence was, and this is me trying to summarize it based off what I remember, but his, he's essentially a bastard. Yeah. His father never married his mother. He ran off he was you know he had a few brothers and never really got to choose his own name it was kind of just given to him uh because his his mother didn't marry uh his father and this then gets into the film and this beautiful moment where sharif ali says it seems to me that you're free to choose your own name then and leaving lawrence this ability to call himself whatever he wants to become part of the arab become part of the desert but that's exactly what Lawrence is dealing with and, and trying to battle and you brought it up with your second viewing of the movie and you say well this is Lawrence this is who he is and that and his struggle for identity is is exactly what we talked about with the struggle to identify this movie there's so much to him there's a lot of complexities to him there's a lot of secrets to him there's a lot of dark darkness to him that people again I've tried to figure out but they can't they don't know and can't confirm basically at this point about who the man really was so and it's fascinating and then when you see the prominence of omar sharif sharif ali's character and how the two again i I said it earlier how they switch places and how he becomes a pacifist whereas lawrence it becomes more violent and enjoys the violence and the bloodshed Mm -hmm. uh it they're both just straight great characters to bounce off of each other and use within scenes 
Yeah, I struggled with it at first, I think, because of how how much Lawrence kind of like flip-flops throughout the film and through his, not only his personality, but the way he carries himself and the way he acts. He goes from being like a very serious, thoughtful person to the next act, to the next moment being like a child in a way, like being so overly expressive, being goofy, showing like a lighthearted side. And, and we are looking at someone who's a young man still like he's he's in his like mid to late 20s i think he's when he like comes back, he's 27 this... yeah yeah which is crazy to think about and you're like no wonder this dude is so lost like it's fascinating because he truly sees himself at, at one point as like a messiah he thinks he can walk on water he thinks he can literally dodge bullets and not die because he's so consumed and caught up by the people that are behind him, all the Arabs that are there who are convincing him basically that he is beyond just a man. And I thought that is, that's so fascinating. And you could kind of take this into a different way of a tragedy. Cause I think this film is definitely a tragedy. And I think that's where the Shakespearean aspect comes to, uh, to the forefront for me as well. But I think this film could have been told in a very non-accurate way where he like does die in battle where he like takes all these Arabs and he like destroys these different tribes so that there's nothing left and that he realizes how much he's destroyed. But instead it, it shows the inner conflict of how much he's still so lost. He thought he like understood his place by being out in the desert, by being with these tribes. And then he realizes he cannot be here that the color of his skin is is beyond just a warning symbol for him to show that he is not one of these people that he can never be one of these people and then by going back to to britain and his officers he he shows him even more so that he's so disconnected from these men as well so he's just so lost in this film and i think that's kind of challenging as a viewer to watch a protagonist who's on one hand so confident in what he's doing has a plan is constantly pushing certain plans but on the other end he's no he's got no control in anything everything is so out of his control but he just thinks he's controlling it yeah 100 percent. and i think like that's what drives him away is his inability to fully assimilate like he thought he was and unfortunately and this is one of the parts of the story that we don't know too accurately is what did happen in Dara when he was captured by the Turks and was supposedly raped, but definitely tortured. Although some people think that that never happened, but in this movie and what lean, I think lean is saying he was raped. He was somewhat defiled. And that I think that that is what leads to that moment at the end when that battle at Tafas, when he's saying no prisoners and he's, you know, shoots that guy point blank in the face. That shot of him, you know, it's bam right in the guy's face. It's so jarring and it's so in your face and visceral. And he just, he becomes this violent man that is completely different from the beginning of the movie where he, uh, he condemns the violence. He refuses to give, you know, you know, Sharif Ali, his name, his name, because this is only his friend, only people that he considers friends and nonviolent. Would he ever give his name to? But at the end, he becomes that, you know, that, you know, grotesque, that baroness character that he condemns the Arabs being in the first place. But and then at the same time, when you do think about that and that, and that thought of like, who am I and where do I come from? You then think about how the Arabs treat that, how Aouda says to Colonel Brighton, like, you know, 
I'm going home because I choose to. You're free to go home if if you want to. And that's where, you know, I think as this, you know, with whites and, and, and the English, this sense of order and that there can't be any chaos and how you have to be dutiful is what is what is challenged by the Bedouin tribes. And they're saying, no, we are free for ourselves. We are free to accept, you know, nature and this way of life. And the cruelty of it is that it's in the desert. You know, if they could have had their own type of paradise that isn't in the desert, they, you know, who knows what the people would have been like, but that's, they live a pretty free way of living. Now that also tiptoes into the territory of how they treat women, which may not be the best be, and there are no women speaking roles in any parts of this movie, which is a little fascinating to think about. Uh, but at the same time, this movie takes a lot of great care with how it does show the tribes and their ways of life. And it does try to be as effective and as honest as possible with that. Yeah. I think it's the longest movie ever than to not have a female speaking role, which is it has crazy. To well, it has yeah, to be one of the longest movies ever in general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So automatically, kind of, it kind of checks that box. I'm curious. Between we started the podcast talking about kind of part one and part two, and how they don't really feel as separate as like say Gone with the Wind. But do you prefer like a, the first part over the second part, or which do you prefer? Um, I think I I do like the story of the first part. I like that it's his journey and it's like really his whole beginning to everything that i really like and they he does a really great job of painting everything i like the the scene where he goes back into the desert to see a scene like that tension that's built up in there is so good it's uh some of the best crafted parts of the entire movie and uh and that's thanks to the editing which i want to get to right after this so i think i do like the first part more but what about you I might go with the second because the second is really like the fall of Lawrence, like the true demise. And we also see like we get we get parts even like with as early as them invading Aquaba, which is a clear sign that he thinks he's like invincible and he thinks he's a messiah almost already at that point. But it doesn't really click in until we get really early on into the second part where we cut to Lawrence bombing the train. They don't have the reinforced ammunition like he thought he was going to get, so they're slowly just kind of like raiding trains as they come along down the train track. And he's almost like a kid, like playing with toys. And he's this weird, twisted person at this point who thinks he's just doing the right thing by these people. But at this point, he's so caught up in it that he thinks he's really just doing everything for himself out of pure enjoyment. And it's it's that moment where he is shot in the arm and and the the Turk is trying to kill him but he's just missing shot after shot and you have the the newsman and the photographer who who's he's making light of the situation where Lawrence on one hand is acting like a kid and a messiah at the same time and that's what's so weird and interesting about his character is that he kind of flip-flops constantly back and forth but it's not in a way that's annoying and it obviously has that beautiful shot of him walking on top of the train with his shadow and everyone cheering him on. I think that's one of my favorite scenes in, in the entire movie because I think it really truly shows how caught up Lawrence is in this situation and how lost he is. And then from that point, we we truly see him unwinding further and further until he's just literally mass murdering everyone. Right. 
So I don't know. I would probably prefer the second. And then uh, the way the film ends, it's, I love a good ending to a film. And I literally had to rewind like three times to be like, what the hell did I miss? Like what the, what is this ending? It's so just vague in a way. Well, after a couple more viewings, it's not as vague as, as I thought at yeah. first, but I don't know. I would probably have to go with the second part for me. Yeah. And I, I think that's totally fair. And, I think I think again it just speaks to how good the movie just is in general that it has a really good beginning, middle, and end that keeps you engrossed in it the entire time. But I want to talk about the editing uh, briefly because Anne Coates uh, she edited this film and we talked about that you know that jump cut of the or is it a jump cut of the or really just that quick cut transition of the match to the sunset and how iconic that is. It's very new wave for so 1962 that makes complete sense that they would take that sort of inspiration, that new way of editing and filmmaking. And then also just be able to handle this size of this movie. I mean, I think it's, if I saw or heard correctly, it was like 33 miles of total raw film, 33 miles. (laughs) And just being able to handle all that and to put it all together and make it a coherent story and choosing the shots perfectly. Although there is one and, you you may not have caught it, but there's a little there is a jump cut in the first scene of the of the second act when Faisal's talking to Jackson Bentley, and as Alec Guinness is talking, there's just this like really quick cut as if you know, and and for me seeing that, that's like oh that's like the fun stuff because that's where the art comes in versus just the story itself. That's where you see the reality of filmmaking, the art form of it of like. Uh, there must have been something in that performance, in that dialogue that wasn't exactly right. But if we do this really quick cut and it's almost matching, no one would really see it except for the guy who is rewatching the four hour long movie for the fifth time or whatever. Let's <laughs> <laughs> do it on his podcast. Then you might notice it. Yeah, yeah. then you might notice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the editing knows it to take its time. It knows to, to show us a, a grand shot with moving camels that are slowly making their way across the frame and knows that filmmaking is is taking us a journey into a new world it's it's about bringing us into this new reality and trying to immerse us as an audience to really feel like we're there and i think a lot of films just don't do that anymore they don't spend the time to show us the world to show us the characters kind of struggling i mean there's many scenes in this film of characters just trying to get across the desert like truly making us feel and showing us how treacherous this land is and how you can barely survive just walking not even walking just riding animals you can just die from dehydration from all the wind from just the harsh elements that are in the desert and i think it's so perfectly shown by by lean and, and and how the film is shot and then also with the editing it just takes its time it, it knows exactly when to you know elongate shots to kind of show us the world and bring us in and then it knows kind of to speed us up i think there definitely is moments of, of this film that you can kind of trim down i think there's a lot when it comes to the boardroom talking, I'll call it a lot of the, the generals and some of the British army just kind of like talking about their plan about the ammunitions. Like it gets a little too in the weeds that I think it doesn't need to, but at the same time you're honoring a true story. So I don't know if that's entirely fair for me to say, you know what I mean? Yeah. I actually would argue that that is important because it, it creates that narrative of who is the villain of this story, who are, 
we fighting against? Uh, yeah. D- and it, that goes along with Florence's identity is like, are the Turks the main villain? Because that seems to be okay. Like, again, like everyone's teaming up to fight the Turks. But then so you don't know who the enemy is. You Lawrence doesn't know his identity, who he's supposed to be w- aligned with. And the, the seeing those boardroom scenes happen, you're like, wait a second. The British aren't nice people. They are trying to deceit. They are they aren't really there to truly help the Arabs as Arabs. They're trying to help them and take over this land and use them as a plot and as ploy for their own power, their own designs. And that and so like yeah, so those scenes do become important though to have, which is why it's so hard to take away a lot from this movie because everything is purposeful. You know what I mean? That everything is intended to be used exactly how it is used yeah you're exactly right and and while there's moments where i think just because the runtime is so long that you just want it to be sped up and to get his character moving forward and faster but you're right i mean everything when it comes to the the british military is pretty integral and especially even closer to the end where he does go back and he's convinced that after he's been captured by the turks that he's really shown that he's a white man and he's never going to fully assimilate to this culture that he goes back and realizes he's even further separated from the British than he even is from the Arabs that he's been spending so much time with. And he thinks he can just kind of go right back to where he came from and blend in, but he can't. And I think that's so beautifully shown by his like wounds kind of breaking open and he's bleeding. And it's, I'm assuming it's kind of like a metaphor as to the way the military has treated him, the way the British kind of don't really respect what he's doing they kind of just use him as a pawn just like they would with anyone and just like they are with the certain tribes they're just pawn pieces for them to move across the board in order for them to get to what they need and I think that's that's a great example of even the last battle where we see really Lawrence completely lose himself as he's attacking the city and uh Damascus right that's what it is yeah yeah uh he's attacking the city and he's just fully blown blown like he's just completely gone he's gone as like the person we once knew and he's become just this mass murderer who's literally doing this purely out of just having good time killing people he's so lost in what he's doing that he doesn't even understand the repercussions he's not even listening to his closest ally uh, with the arabs that he's just so caught up in and just murder and just like doing this as he thinks he's doing something that's good for both the Arabs and the British, but he's just doing it for himself. Yeah. And he's so lost in it. Right. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of like moments in other characters that in other film and TV shows that it's like that. And the one that is forming in my mind is Walter White (laughs) and breaking bad Yeah, and how he does. He thinks he's doing it for the right reasons, but um, he He's very deceitful. He's not who he is at all at any time. And that's kind of the mystery to him. And maybe I'm sure you could ask Vince Gilligan, like, hey, when you were thinking of the show, were you thinking about Lawrence and Lawrence of Arabia and that question of identity? And maybe that was there. I mean, I know that people point to, I don't know if you saw this about Prometheus and um, Michael Fassbender's character, David, 
he watches Lawrence of Arabia and like how his identity is a question in that movie and who he really oh, is. Interesting. And then how those movies then develop what, into what? There's two other movies after that, or <laughs> another storyline never ends. The storyline. Yeah. Oh, don't even get me started on that. Piss me <laughs> okay, so I won't. I won't. But, but yeah, I but think the, you, we go on. Yeah. I think you could see a lot of like Apocalypse Now for sure. I think a lot of the movies that I mentioned earlier on, uh, even Avatar in a way, where we have Jake Sully's character who's He's working with the, I wanted to say Americans, but it's not. He's working with humans and he's working with the Navi and he learns to love the Navi and their culture. And he's so assimilated into that culture that he physically wants to be one of them forever. And I think that's, you get some of the morality as well in Apocalypse Now where you have Martin Sheen's character who's so deep into the jungle and into this 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 culture that he's like, is this guy, is Brando's character doing the right thing? Like, is he actually helping these people? Should I even kill this guy? Like, where? Well, I'm so lost now at this point that I don't even know what's happening. Yeah. So I think you can see a lot of kind of parallels moving forward in history with making these big kind of epic films that have characters that are trying to assimilate and, and whether they can assimilate or not. And it was funny, I recently saw the re-release of Avatar and I was joking with my girlfriend because she really loved Avatar. It's been such a long time since she'd seen it, probably since the first time it was in theaters uh, 12 years ago. But she she really loved it. And I was like, if you like this, I think you would like Lawrence of Arabia. It's basically this movie, but a much darker and sandier version. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of people would say that's a ridiculous comparison. But if you really look at the specific story beats and and the way our protagonist kind of carries throughout the film yes avatar is much a, a hero's journey as it is an epic or assimilation film while lawrence of arabia is truly about our protagonist kind of being lost and leaving it up to the audience whether he did the right thing or what is the right thing is the question so uh, this film definitely inspired so many so many different films oh yeah. uh, and i'm glad that I'm glad that you brought up uh, how it was also inspired by previous film because I think now we're we're getting to the 60s where we are inspired by other films that have come before us. And it's such an interesting ground where we have watched so many films at this point and we've been constantly seeing like saying, oh, like we can see this further movie down the line and down history and how it was inspired. So now that we're getting to the point where we can finally like look back in a way and say like, wow, this film was inspired by this. I love that. It's, that's such a cool thing that we're being able to experience and, and go through film history with. Oh yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think it's a beautiful idea and, and we'll see that a lot in this Academy Awards. And um, I think we're close to getting to that, but there's one other thing that, uh, that you kind of talked about again with stuff that like, I don't know if you meant it as like, Oh, this is not necessary, but what is fascinating and interesting is the the takeover of the Arabs and them trying to establish somewhat of a government or somewhat of a of a bureaucracy and that is the kind of the downfall of it too is because there's yeah. too much history and too much animosity between tribes and, and people even though they all just or what we see as all fought together to get to this point and it's also its downfall. So it's a fascinating thing. And then going back to, you know, Sharif's, all these characters, he, he believes in it. Cause he reads about parliament and like how, and like that part of government and becoming a politician with Jackson Bentley kind of mocks him for this American, like you can't have a democracy. Like we can thinking that like 
how dare people in the They're desert try to do that? Yeah. And and I think that it could have. You you watch these moments and these scenes, and I know, and this is like where like this isn't actually a textbook, but you think about the actual history. It was like, what could have been if like we did take the time and the care, we didn't use this moment in time as a plot, as a ploy to gain power, and and during World War One and how it then fell out in the you know in, in the 60s 70s and the 80s and eventually how america's involvement got brought into it it's uh it's a sad reality of how history has unfolded and how it is cyclical and it goes on and just that everything is written over and over again nothing is written i think is a statement that is hard to truly believe in because so much of what happens will continue to happen. And then we talk about inspiration and the light and fluffy side of it that, yeah, that the film industry is becoming cyclical. Now we can see where this story has repeated in other films, where this technique is used, how this advances, how this creates more opportunities for filmmakers and what this movie is and what the, and kind of the summation of it all again, praising David lean is he created something that, very few have been able to accomplish using the art form of film. You know, he, he did something that, I don't know. Can we like in turn, we gone with the wind is on the same level, right? We're going to, we agree on that. Sure. Is the wizard of Oz on the same level of this type of movie <laughs> in seriousness? I know it's not the same length, but is it, I know it's hard to compare the two cause they're so different, but yeah, in terms of a classic, like a film that will forever be remembered. Yeah. I would say so. so. Okay. So we have that. So let's go a little bit further. Is anything in the forties that stand out? I mean, in terms of best picture winners, maybe best years of our lives, but nothing truly from the forties, but then we get into the fifties and we get Ben Hur. Ben Hur has to be on the same level as this in terms of scope, right? <laughs> Yeah, Not sure. In terms of quality, no. <laughs> in terms of quality, no. But do you? But could this movie have been made if Ben Hur hadn't been made? Because you could all look at it as Lean saying to critics and to the film industry, well, because you kind of like forced Ben Hur to be made like not exactly in the desert, not as authentic as it could be. I'm going to make this as authentic as it can be. <laughs> you know, and well, I think if you're purely talking about you know, authenticity and, and, and especially with setting, I think Ben Hur's it's night and day. That film, while the, you know, the Coliseum scene is, is gorgeous and it's so impressive and we laud and praise that scene in particular, it's, you know, it's not real. Like it, you can look at that and you can see that this is not real. They're not on location to a degree. They're not on location. And I think if you're really looking at that level of increased, in, looking at that level of granularity and, and, and showing uh, the subject and the setting as so pitch perfect. I think you could directly look at his other film, the bridge on the river Kwai. I think you could look at even on the waterfront, the way that show, and it's such a different setting, but it shows that setting on the, on the waterfront in such a very particular and honest and earnest way. So yeah. I think those two are also uh, another two films that you could look at and it goes beyond just being, a film on sets, right? You feel so it, the film feels so alive. It's really, yeah. there's no better way to put it. Yeah. So I think there are a number of movies. I mean, like the searchers is that on, you know, this, the scope of that like has to influence as well. Yeah. And then you jump ahead to, I don't know. You, we can think of uh, like dances with wolves. Like that's definitely up there. We think of Lord of the Rings. We, 
Avatar is up there in the terms of its scope and its length. Uh, I think there are a lot of movies that we can put up. I think 2001 fits in kind of yeah. nicely. Even with, the sound of music, honestly, with with the setting that there's there's kind of really showing that setting. Oh, oh boy, you just you hit something that I was trying <laughs> not to talk about because I want to <laughs> save it for sound of music. But uh, Doctor Zhivago being the next movie, which I, I, might be the actual masterpiece of David Lean's career, and I being and, his next film is that what you mean? Yeah, that's his next film. Omar Sharif robbed. I mm, I want to. I got to hold back because we <laughs> I'll watch up. that film for the, the 66 yeah. Oscars. Okay. Please do. Please do. Because there's, there's, um, there's a lot, I think that would talk about with that. So, uh, don't want to peel off that, that but layer of the onion too that, much. That does bring up, uh, I think David Lean just on another level in terms of filmmaking and in terms of putting that much time into a production. I mean, the fact that if that's actually true, his next film is almost four years after this film. In terms of its release he, date? Well, he did Bridge on the River Kwai, five years, then made Lawrence, and then, yeah, four, three, four years made Dr. Zhivago. Those were three movies yeah. in a row. And there's a lot of directors, even Spielberg that we brought up, has made amazing films and even made two amazing films in one year. But I think it shows just how much David Lean cares about these subjects, how much he cares about the setting, how much he cares about making something feel authentic and real. So I've heard a lot of goofy things about Dr. Zhivago. I think I've, I've heard a lot of praise and for the score and the cinematography. A lot of jokes, I think, came from Seinfeld because there's an ongoing bit about that film. So I will definitely watch that, though, and give it the, the time it needs simply because I've loved these past two David Lean films. I honestly might watch Dr. Zhivago after we're done talking because now I can, like... <laughs> because, like, you know, when we do the podcast, we, you know, watch the movie that we're talking about, like, multiple times. Maybe we'll watch a movie or two from that same year. But this entire time when reading about David Lean and, and Omar Sharif, I'm just like, I just want to watch Dr. Zhivago again because because it, he like takes it a step further. He takes like like what he did with, with Bridge on the River Kwai. He, he improves upon it in Lawrence of Arabia. And then some of the stuff he does in this movie, he greatly in, approves upon it in his next movie. And he's a director that adapts and, and assimilates himself uh, into the art form. So it is quite great. Is there any last thoughts before... I feel like we, we, we've hit on a lot of it. I mean, this is like vastly different than our Gone with the Wind conversation, which was a two-parter. <laughs> but I think that also was necessitated because of how historical it was and how... And again, like I say, like I don't think this movie could exist if you didn't have a Gone with the Wind that came out 15 years beforehand. Or is not... Whatever, 20 years, we'll say, beforehand. You, know, you wouldn't be able to have the two. So, yeah, is there any last-minute thoughts before we wrap up uh, Lawrence of Arabia? Yeah, I think a good way, we we opened it talking a little bit about structure, and I mentioned Scorsese, and that wasn't a slight by Scorsese. It was actually a compliment to the film in the way that he he thought the structure of this film was so interesting that this open-ended nature made it almost feel like, in a way, you talked a lot about historical events being cyclical and... and and the way that even Lawrence is, is cyclical in this film and he's doing things in order to try to improve something, but it's just bringing him back right where they started. And I think that's exactly the way the film is structured and it creates this almost like timeless feeling to the film where the movie ends and you could almost like roll the tape and go right back to the beginning 
and start over. And that's crazy to say about a four-hour film. Like a four-hour film, it feels like a journey, and it does feel like a journey, but at the same time, it feels like a snake eating its own tail in a way. So I really wanted to end the conversation talking about really what you thought specifically about the beginning and the end. What what does it mean to show us Lawrence's death? Obviously, we're bringing up questions of who he is. Why kill Lawrence on a motorcycle in, in this particular way? Is it just purely to kind of do it historically? But why open the film this way? What do you think? I think it is purely historical. I think it's meant to... It has that Citizen Kane effect, you know, and that it is supposed to be like, well, who is the man? Who is the guy? What is the story if we know the ending? There has to be something that we don't know that leads up to it. And I think that there is such a disconnect because you don't get his return back to England. You don't really get him on a motorcycle. You don't really understand his, like, recklessness after, you know, what happens in the desert. Um, so I feel like that it feels incomplete in that way, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting way to tell a story. And I, it's happened other times before and it's just hard to, to pinpoint exactly, but I, I do feel like I've seen it where they're like, here's the ending and now here's the beginning of what leads to it. Yeah. I thought a lot about it because we have the ending, which kind of, it alludes to the beginning of the film, right? He's driving away in this truck he's getting taken home to go back to to britain and he's he sees the motorcycle kind of drive by and to me that level of freedom and openness and and cleanness in a way using lawrence's own language is kind of represented in a motorcycle being this person who's like pushing their way forward who's free and open to turn to move in any way there's not really many restrictions in his way And it's almost like that's the way he feels or maybe riding a motorcycle is kind of what brings him back to being in the desert, back to feeling that level of openness, that level of cleanness and control. So what did you think? Do you think there's like more symbolism to the motorcycle or is that nod to the motorcycle at the very end? Is that related or is that just a a coincidence? Yeah, well, even just thinking about it now, uh, you know, I think I think one, you can pull a lot of theories and ideas from many things and maybe it's not as intentional but i do think you can look at it as here's the the modernization the english way of how lawrence could live his life that instead of riding a camel he rides a motorcycle you know even when he first learns to ride the camel he goes really fast on it and he falls off so it's kind of like this foreshadowing it's the ending he's he had he still doesn't have his identity by the end so maybe he looks at that motorcycle as like, well, my escape that I can travel on this and I can ride around on this and this will maybe this will give me my identity in life because this huge like last few years and time and, and all the events that happened still didn't satisfy it enough, still didn't give me exactly what I've been searching for. So maybe this motorcycle will. And I think that there's a lot of ways you can look at it. But to me, I think the best way, at least the way I think it is exactly is like, here's the life I could have had. Here's the fast lane. I could be riding a motorcycle versus riding a camel, you know, riding in the English hillside versus the desert hills of, you know, in, in Arabia. Yeah. It's interesting. It's almost in a way alluding to Lawrence, not really learning anything like he's experienced so much, but he's still, wants to just like push himself to his limit and thinking that challenging 
not only his bo- his mind and his body, but challenging his whole ideology and, and pushing himself forward by just you know literally driving as fast as he can on a motorcycle. Who knows if he's even going somewhere? Do we even know if he's on the way somewhere? We don't. And it's so interesting that the film with its opening credits is just him getting ready to ride his motorcycle. It's him like tinkering with things. He's getting ready for his journey. And I'm, in what way is that related to, to him with respecting, I don't know, the life that they lived, riding the camels. But then at the same time, he's just like speeding forward. I don't care where I'm going. I'm just going to go as fast as I possibly can because it's a challenge for myself. So there's there's so much in this film. Yeah, he's an extremist. He, as someone said in the beginning, he's an exhibitionist. He lives life to the fullest because I think again that lack of identity that I think that that's the performance that a tool brings and and to touch on that one last time is he because of he's so eccentric that he's so boisterous that he his emotions are so extreme is because he's a character someone who doesn't know how to be how to be a normal or I shouldn't use the word normal because what is normal but what it is to be passing by as like this is what you should give off as a happy emotion. This is what you should give off as a sad emotion. He gives, he goes to the extremes and that's where he gets completely lost in his identity, his God, you know, complex, his, you know, him standing in front of firing bullets and not thinking he'll get hit. How, you know, it, it goes in so many ways. And so, yeah, he, he believes in so much, but also doesn't believe in anything at all. And here's a man with that is popular and well-known, but, no one really knows him at his death. No one truly understands who Lawrence is and why there's so many people there to celebrate him besides, as Allenby would say, his time in the desert was, you know, he was heavily involved in the revolt in the desert. That was so well said, Ben. I think there's no better time to jump in to the 35th Academy Awards. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences presents its 35th Annual Achievement Awards. The 35th Academy Awards were held on April 8, 1963 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California, and the event was hosted by Frank Sinatra. Before we get into the actual awards of the ceremony, I want to get into a little clip that Frank Sinatra uh, said as he gave the intro to the 35th Academy Awards and this really great allegory that he sets up for the film industry. So here's Frank Sinatra. A funny thing happened to me last time I was in Washington, which incidentally was quite a while ago. I was passing the National Gallery, I guess you might call it an art house. And all the way around the block was a tremendous line of people right, waiting to get in to see a little Italian picture called... Uh, Mona Lisa. Uh, my first reaction was, go fight it. These Italian picture makers have been knocking our brains out for years. My second reaction was, I wondered how come the three centuries later they were still lining up to see a picture, not widescreen, doesn't even move or talk. The chick just sits there and smiles. Well, not even smiles, she kind of smiles. How come they're still lining up to see it? I'm still not sure, but maybe 
Maybe it's because the Mona Lisa represents one man's personal vision, a picture he had to make, not something turned out on an assembly line because the Italian painting industry needed product, but a picture he had to make so badly his brushes hurt. Actually, a marvelous thing is beginning to happen to us here. Other mediums have come along that can turn out assembly line product, English translation junk, faster and cheaper and better than we can. And whether we like it or not, if we want to compete, we're being forced back into the Mona Lisa business ourselves. And we're beginning to find out it's a pretty nice business to be in. Only a couple of years ago, say, if Leonardo da Vinci had wanted to make the Mona Lisa out here, he might have had a few problems here and there. For instance, the scene of producer's office. Da Vinci enters and explains he's got an idea for a picture. A beautiful woman, he says, sitting there smiling. Well, not exactly smiling, kind of smiling. <clears throat> he finishes and then there's a long silence. Finally, the producer speaks. Well, he says, uh, I don't know, but it does have a great part for a girl. Now, if we can get somebody to pose for it, Liz, maybe, or Ingrid, or Doris, or even Anne Margaret. Some kind of a name like that. You know, Leonardo, baby, I like it. I really like it. And we might even change the title to Mona and Lisa. Pick up some of the odd house crowd that way, see? Da Vinci gulps, but he's got a house in Brentwood, three kids, and an analyst to support. Why should he argue about it? Now the producer's really getting warmed up. We've got a picture here, he says. We've really got a picture. Now all you've got to do, Leonardo baby, is just paint a guy in there looking over her shoulder, see? We get Rock or Greg or Tony or somebody to pose for it, just for a love interest. And the motivation, we've got to clean that up. I mean, you just can't have a dame sitting there smiling. You've got to tell the audience what she's smiling about. Leonardo, sweetheart, if I were making this picture, which I am, I'd paint in some big kind of a cocktail party scene in the foreground, give it some production value. It's a flashback, see? She's smiling and thinking about the decadent life she used to lead before she, uh, I don't know, joined the Peace Corps or something. <laughs> anyway, that's how they made Mona and Lisa for $8 million, opened it at the music hall where it bombed out for obvious reasons, and six months later they sold it to television. Now, obviously, this little story is not true. Nothing like that could happen here. <laughs> the truth, the happy truth, is that many of the pictures and artists we're honoring here tonight are already in the Mona Lisa business, making pictures because they, as artists, want to make them, because they have to make them so badly their cameras and their typewriters and their eyebrow pencils hurt. And as I said, it's a pretty nice business to be in. I mean, what a lovely career we've seen him go through of being someone who was a musician who kind of faded away who then came back into popularity who then tried a film career and everyone like laughed at him and said he couldn't do it who's now hosting the oscars like that's yeah, crazy he, he considers himself a filmmaker and part of the industry as and much as probably as he considers himself a singer and songwriter and so. i think he's an artist as many many artists should be simply labeled as artists he's a good man all right. Well, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that part. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Anyways, <laughs> Honorary Academy Awards. The Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award went to Steve Freudy. 
Brody served on the MPAA Board of Governors from June 1960 through May 1969 and was their second vice president from 1967 to 1968. Best special effects went to The Longest Day, visual effects by Robert McDonald, audible effects by Jacques Malmont. This is McDonald's second career Academy Award for Best Special Effects, and he previously won in 1960 for Ben-Hur. This is Malmont's first and only Academy Award. Best film editing went to Lawrence of Arabia to Anne V. Coates. This is Coates' first and only Academy Award out of five nominations. She was awarded BAFTA's highest honor of BAFTA Fellowship in February 2007 and was given an Academy Honorary Award, which are properly known as Lifetime Achievement Oscars, in November 2016 by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. So Anne Coates, being a woman in not just the film industry, but as a film editor, it was, is an incredible achievement. And she was an absolute influence. I mean, she, you know, kind of paved the way for some of the best film, filmmakers and film editors of all time. And it truly incredible. And I wanted to point out just like, she has so much like her filmography is humongous. Uh, she also worked on The Elephant Man. She also worked on Fifty Shades of Grey. So she was working up until 2015. So like Aaron Brockovich, she was the editor on. So she has this humongous filmography and influence that can be, I think, traced all the way back and forth throughout the Academy Awards from forty from the 40s to modern times. So uh, really impressive and amazing feat by Aaron Coates, and especially to edit a humongous film like Lawrence of Arabia. I wonder if she was, you know, just an old lady editing Fifty Shades of Grey, and she was like, I, I edited Lawrence of Arabia, and, <laughs> and I'm editing Fifty Shades of Grey right now? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's just too funny not to it, think about. I know. It's, but, man, I mean, so she, so that movie came out in 2015, and she was born in 1925, so she's, eight, she's <laughs> 90. Insane. We have a 90-year-old woman editing. I mean, there are three editors in that movie, but still. <laughs> she could have died just looking at the raw takes from that <laughs> film. <laughs> oh, man. Best costume design color went to Mary Willis for The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. This is Willis' only career win out of seven total nominations, and her first job in Hollywood was actually working as a sketch artist on the film that we've talked a lot about in comparison, Gone with the Wind. So I wanted to point out for this category that Lawrence Arabia only had 10 nominations, but it could have had an 11th nomination, and it would have been in this category, but they forgot to submit for Phyllis Dalton, the costume designer, for this category. Just completely forgot, which is such a shame uh, because, and we really talk about it, but Lawrence's robes that he gets and all the different you know, robes and outfits that we see throughout the movie. And then everyone always points out how Lawrence's robes get thinner throughout the movie because it's like ghost like kind of creature. And so, yeah, just amazing, um, amazing, amazing work by Phyllis Dalton. And she actually would win in a few years for Dr. Zhivago. So she gets her award where it, when it's due. Moving on to best costume design, black and white. This one went to Norma Koch for whatever happened to baby Jane. This is Koch's only career win. She was also a costume designer on the 1955 Best Picture winner, Marty. Best Cinematography Color 
onto Freddie Young for Lawrence of Arabia. Young is probably best known for his work on David Lean's films Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and Ryan's Daughter from 1970, all three which won Academy Awards for Best Cinematography. He was often credited as F.A. Young, and his career spans all the way back to the late 1920s. So, Ben, is there anything else that we can even praise? I mean, this is one of the most lauded and, and loved film for its cinematography. What else is there to say? I think when a movie gets its own special lens crafted specifically for that movie <laughs> and never used again, probably indicates that there was a lot of care and thought put into this movie. A 482 millimeter lens, telephoto lens to get that mirage shot. I can't even. That's insane. I can't even fathom <laughs> what that must have looked like to have to carry and and the the camera assistant had to like bring that to him. It's like, oh, I can't fucking drop this this big you know hunk of glass yeah he's like this thing's worth literally a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> like can't mess this up i'm like trying to find a good picture for it but let's see if we can find one yeah. not that it matters for a podcast audience <laughs> no <but>. it matters <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i found a video of it it's not yeah. what i thought it would look like but i don't know what i would have expected and that shows it shows an image of it and then it cuts to like the scene kind of demonstrating what that oh, lens okay. would I think I look like. It. So it's it's an extremely long cylindrical tube. Exactly what a weird looking long lens. It kind of reminds me of like what we see nowadays with like probe lensing. Yeah. Where like these really long like two, three feet long lens that you can kind of get extreme close-ups instead of extreme long shots. Best cinematography, black and white, went to The Longest Day, John Bourjan and Walter Waditz. This is Bourjan's and Waditz' only Academy Award wins. Best Art Direction, Color, went to Lawrence of Arabia. Art Direction by John Box and John Stoll. Set Direction by Dario Simone. This is Box's first of four Academy Awards, Stoll's only Oscar win, and Simone's first of two Academy Awards. Box and Simone would go would both go on to win in the same category for their work on 1965's Dr. Zhivago. Best Art Direction Black and White went to To Kill a Mockingbird. Art Direction by Alexander Goldson and Henry Bumstead. Set Decoration by Oliver Emmert. This is Goldson's third and final Academy Award he previously won for Phantom of the Opera and Spartacus. This is Bumstead's first of two Academy Awards, and he would go on to win for the 1973 Best Picture winner, The Sting, and this is Emmert's only Academy Award win. Best Sound went to John Cox for Lawrence of Arabia. This is Cox's only Academy Award win. So, Ben, we talked a little bit about the amazing score, but we didn't talk about the sound and the awesome sound design of not only the desert, but a lot of the war scenes, even the you know, the military quarters of the British. There's a lot of great sound design of the space, but it really comes down to the amazing desert sound design. Yeah, kind of the just like stillness and the nothing, but also the little bits of wind and and, mm-hmm. and rustling here and there that, that really adds to it. It's I think that when we watch some of these like old Hollywood, like the studios like kind of mess up the sound sometimes. Sound can be like tinny and there's like these weird echoes at time, but because this was shot in nature, it's incredible design. It, it's incredible work. 
uh, that's done. Uh, so yeah, definitely a deserved win. And it's something that, that most people wouldn't recognize or realize what's going on, but it's really great work uh, from a technical side. I think as two, two uh, previous film students, we know how hard it is to record with very heavy wind. And oh, just yeah. the thought of recording these people's, uh, you know, these actors' close-up dialogue. Sometimes it's even whispered to each other, like very quiet dialogue at times while you're surrounded by very windy terrain. It's kind of fascinating that the film sounds as good as it does. Yeah, and I think that a really an opposite setting that he captures well is when Lawrence is talking with Allenby and and they're in this great room and Allenby's boom boistering voice that echoes whereas Lawrence is subtle you can barely hear him there's no really no echoes and that it, to be in like the same environment and the way that it's captured is, is so good and uh it, it's one of the examples of how good the work is moving on to best song this one went to Days of Wine and Roses from Days of Wine and Roses, music by Henry Mancini and lyrics by Johnny Mercer. So without further ado, here is Days of Wine and Roses. This is Mancini's third of four Academy Awards. In 1961, Mancini won two Academy Awards, one for Moon River for Best Original Song and one for Best Scoring of Dramatic Picture of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture for the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. And he would go on to win for Best Original Score in 1982 for Victor Victoria. This is Mercer's fourth and final award. So this is tied for the most in the Best Song category with Sammy Kahn, Alan Menken, and Jamie Von Heusen. Uh, films uh, that Mercer won for include On the Hutchinson, Topeka, and the Santa Fe uh, for the Harvey Girls, In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening, from Here Comes the Groom, again, Moon River, and Days of Wine and Roses. But I kind of redacted this and didn't want John to see. Mercer is also known for writing, and John, you can reveal the redaction on the outline, and you can tell the audience what song it is. <gasps> Wow. <laughs> song used in every episode. Hooray for Hollywood. I love that. That's yeah, awesome. so it the Mercer has been with us this entire time and I know we don't use the lyrics part of the song, but yeah, he uh it's it's kinda cool that this guy has subtly been winning all these awards. We've been using hit one of the most iconic pieces, Hooray for Hollywood, as part of our uh podcast and so we want to thank you, Johnny Mercer. Uh, for your work and your contributions to the music industry and to this podcast to this podcast and hooray for how i mean there's a reason why we use it in, in every episode it's just it's a song that has such energy to it and it does make me feel like i'm i'm it just really brings me to the movie going experience and cinema and it just has that like vibrancy of we're about to go on an adventure like you're about to see a new world and it's so exuberant and bright Man, I love that song. Even after editing now, 
what we're 35 episodes in 40 plus with other random episodes that we've done using that song almost in every episode it still slaps every single slaps time so hard <laughs> best scoring of music adaptation or treatment goes to ray heindorf for meredith wilson's the music man this is Heindorf's third and final Academy Award. He previously won for Yankee Doodle Dandy in 1943, and this is The Army in 1944. Ben, I know you recently just saw an adaptation of The Music Man. I have no idea if these are similar, if they use the same music, but thoughts? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's definitely the same. I mean, I've seen the, that movie when I was a kid, and uh, it's uh, it's a great – It's it is very iconic music, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but this is not a singing episode, and for those who have to want us want us to sing, we will sing next in My Fair Lady. I think is our next musical, so I'm gonna <laughs> save my voice for that. Moving on to best music score, substantially original, went to Lawrence of Arabia to Maurice Jarre. This is Jarre's first of three Academy Awards. He was nominated nine times, winning three in the best original score category for. This one, Lawrence Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and A Passage to India, all of which were directed by David Lean. In 2005, the American Film Institute named Maurice Jarre's score for Lawrence of Arabia as the third best score of all time behind only Gone with the Wind and Star Wars, the original one. And probably might get surpassed by The Batman from 2022, but that is just me and when AFI decides to redo that list. That one better be in the top five. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an epic score. But, I mean, what what can we say about the score of Lawrence of Arabia that we haven't said? Well, I think, like, I think, like, that kind of, like, comparison of how iconic it is really shows how rare it is to have iconic scores. Like, this clearly influenced Star Wars, you know? Clearly, John Williams was like, oh, Lawrence of Arabia? the desert space let me do this and do that and dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and that so you can, can clearly tell that that influence is there but it also shows how hard it is to make a memorable score and like i joke about the batman and that score but name me a movie of the okay lord of the rings that one aside name me another score besides what the batman put out that is as good and iconic that sticks with you and that feels as memorable i don't think there's really much <laughs> nothing jumping out at me but now that you brought up the batman i just immediately go to the dark knight or oh, maybe interstellar that's what i would say because okay. I, I i love interstellar and i love the score and i just put that on our instagram story today about one of my favorite scores okay yeah all right that's fair that's fair but yeah but i think it, it's <laughs> but that's few and far between inception maybe but it really comes down to the the same composer which i'm unfortunately forgetting Hans name Zimmer. Right Hans Zimmer, but also Hans to the I think Nolan, Christopher Nolan, is a great modern comparison to David Lean and the care and the scope of what he they put into it. I mean, Christopher Nolan wants to do everything in camera, as little CGI as possible. Whereas yeah, David, right. you know, David Lean approached Lawrence of Arabia with as little, you know, there wasn't CGI, but he wanted everything to feel real and authentic. You know, there's like no matte paintings that they use as backgrounds. It's all real where it was filmed, you know? Yeah, no, that's a good comparison. I think David Lean definitely leans more into the historical aspect and and specifically about, you know, exploring different regions of the world and, and different cultures. And I think he's 
no one's much more interested in in um, genre filmmaking and oh and, yeah, you know, telling good stories and a lot of. But I, don't I think say science just, fiction, but yeah, but know. just in terms of like scope and and the command that they have, maybe it's a British thing. Yeah, maybe British filmmakers yeah. have a better sense of that and approach to how to do film that in those ways, but definitely fascinating and interesting to think about that kind of comparison. Well, but yeah, but Maurice Jarre, amazing score. One of the I, best. And I take, I take back what I said too, because I just thought of Dunkirk, which is such a perfect example. And I think that's a movie that David Lean probably would have loved. Oh yeah. Best short subject cartoon went to the hole. Best live action short subject went to Hero and a Versaire. Best documentary short went to Dylan Thomas. Best documentary feature went to Black Fox. Best foreign language film went to France for Sundays and Sibylle. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to To Kill a Mockingbird to Horton Foote. This is Foote's first of two Academy Awards. He would go on to win for Best Original Screenplay for Tender Mercies in 1983. Foote received an Academy Award and a Writers Guild of America Screen Award for his adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. Foote did not attend the Oscar ceremony in 1963 because he did not expect to win and so was not present to collect the award in person. It was accepted on his behalf by the film's producer, Alan J. Pakula. So I bring that up and... I want to just kind of go off a little bit of like a tangent rant, but Lawrence of Arabia was also nominated in this category and I'm not trying to take away from To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think this also treads into the territory of well, what does the best adaptation screenplay really mean? Is it just the best screenplay overall? Is it the best attempt at an adaptation of a screenplay? Is it just the, you know, just a screenplay that's just based on an adaptation? Like what, what does that mean? And, I love To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a great movie. But the source material is pretty damn rich and pretty good. So it kind of feels like a cheat code to use that and to also win an award for it. Whereas like Lawrence of Arabia, based off of, you know, the pillars of seven the seven pillars of wisdom, really, you know, truly adapted, truly, you know, turned into its own film. Like it feels it's very authentic and for that this is like one of the few awards that it doesn't win for. It feels kind of like weird that like this grand movie and usually a screenplay does go for a best picture win, but to be beat out feels kind of weird. And like, I'm not trying to downgrade to kill a mockingbird, but also that is based off of something so good. Whereas like, this is like a really good adaptation of something that isn't as well known and is able to be so effective. There are so many great lines that comes from the movie. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? And do you, agree or disagree with that at all that's such an interesting question because it opens it opens such a big you know you have a start and finish to a film when it's based on historical events you know where it starts where it ends much like the bible you have these specific stories but you know really the main story is about jesus his fall rise and and rise again but you know, when you look at a comparison to a book, you have every beat, you have every character, you have every beat. So I think I think you have some leverage there in saying that you have, you know, your, your extra little like boosts, your homework, your cheat sheet, I think you, as you've called certain things in the past. And I think you need to look at something like a book and, and pick apart characters and, 
And especially when you're talking about a novel that internalizes people's thoughts, you could even go further into that. And then when you compare it to something like historical, then it, it it's kind of boundless. And especially when it's about T.E. Lawrence, when it's someone that we don't know that much about. And then the fact that this film is involving the audience in that as well. So it, it almost like the film comments on it, on how hard it is to make something based on real life and that just kind of muddies what the best screenplay based on a material from another medium is. And I think I've said this previously, but it just feels like they're just using this as book adaptations. Basically, best screenplay based on a book is really what this this category should be called. Yeah, I think that's totally fair to call it that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I'm not trying to downgrade To Kill a Mockingbird, but... Uh, this is one I was I was surprised going back and realizing it didn't win screenplay for Lawrence of Arabia. I was a little taken aback by that. Best story and screenplay written directly for the screen goes to Anio Di Concini, Alfredo Giannetti, and Pietro Garmi for Divorce Italian Style. This is everyone's first and only Academy Award win. Best supporting actress goes to Patty Duke for the Miracle Worker. This is Duke's only Academy Award win. She originated the role in the Broadway production of The Miracle Worker. Over the course of her acting career, she was the recipient of the Academy Award, two Golden Globe Awards, three Primetime Emmys, and a star on the Walk of Fame. And just to add in my love affair for Lord of the Rings, she's also the mother of actor Sean Astin, uh, who plays Samwise Gamgee. Oh, man. I've gotten... I've gotten to the point where that shit just makes me sad. <laughs> what? Where hearing about people's kids or how their dad was someone. And I'm like, Hollywood is just so small. It's just families. Yep. It's just yep. family. It's literally house. Of it's Game of Thrones in Hollywood. Everyone's yep. just fucking some other person's kid. And then the kid becomes an actor, too. And then uh, it just I makes mean, me every sad. Every filmmaker, <laughs> director, their kid gets involved somehow. <laughs> not saying it's exact but i think a, like the uh, the odds increase <laughs> like it has to increase if like you're in production industry like are my kids gonna is there more of a, a susceptible to becoming part of tv <laughs> you know it's a possibility i think it probably like and it really depends probably like where like you are when your kids grow up i guess and like see i was that's so funny that we brought this up because i was just thinking about this today and i was just thinking about I forget which actress, but an actress that I don't think has uh, kids that are in the industry. And I'm like, what makes the difference between someone whose kid who goes in the industry and doesn't? And and my understanding and my guess really is depending on how the kid sees their parent. Are they seeing them at like a high moment in their career? Are they seeing them as someone who's never around? Like, and do I want to live that life? Do I want to be the kind of person who's just never there for my family? Or are they like, they are really good at balancing it? You know, like what, what is it? Or is it just an easy out for someone who already has that kind of, that, that kind of ladder to climb up and of like, of course I'll do this because it's, you're successful, you become rich, you become famous. Like there's so many things to it. So I went down like a mental rabbit hole of thinking like of the people that don't go into the industry and how easy it probably could have been for them to kind of yeah. get us, get us foot in the door. But anyway, that's not the conversation we're having. Neither here nor there. Best supporting actor went to Ed Begley for sweet bird of youth. 
This is Begley's first and only Academy Award win and nomination. Completely robs Omar Sharif. I cannot seem to figure out why Begley won. I mean, looking up this movie, there's really not much to it. I'm sure he was a nice guy, but is this just a, hey, we're not going to give it to the Egyptian? Are we not going to, you know, what? like, no, we would never give it to someone with brown skin type of thing. Is, is this what's going on right now, or is this just a complete oversight and just a huge mistake? Because oh, it's hard. He to should, Omar Sharif should have won. There, it it should have won. It, he's incredible in this movie. It's it's hard to say because we've already had people of color win at this point. Is it? I don't. It's so hard to say. Is it because he's like not really a known actor, but we've seen actors come in and win for their like first big performance. There was an Italian actress recently that that just happened a couple of years ago, I think, as well. So, yeah, it is weird. Also, just looking up this movie, it's just all about Paul Newman. I, I'm not really sure, like how that how how that yeah, uh, how does this fit in? How does that fit into this this Ed Begley as a uh, best supporting actor? So, it makes me want to see the movie when like a random person that you've never heard of, who's like its first and only Academy Award win, you're like, what makes this that like the best supporting performance of that year? Right. And it certainly should have been Omar Sharif because, goddamn, definitely should have been. Moving on to Best Actress, went to Anne Bancroft for *The Miracle Worker*. This is Bancroft's only Academy Award out of five total nominations, including her role as Mrs. Robinson in *The Graduate*. Bancroft received an Academy Award, three BAFTA awards, two Golden Globes, two Tony Awards, two Primetime Emmys and a Cannes Film Festival Award. She is one of only 24 thespians to achieve the triple crown of acting. Bancroft won the Tony Award for Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Play in 1960 uh, when she played the role of Anne Sullivan, the young woman who teaches the child Helen Keller to communicate in The Miracle Worker, and she would go on to, uh, to readapt that role for film. Because Bancroft had returned to Broadway to star in Mother Courage and Her Children, Joan Crawford accepted the Oscar on her behalf and later presented the award to her in New York. Best Actor went to Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird. This is Peck's first and only Academy Award win out of five total nominations, and To Kill a Mockingbird was his final nomination. In 2003, Atticus Finch as portrayed by Peck, was named the greatest film hero of the past 100 years by the American Film Institute. Peck would later say of To Kill a Mockingbird, my favorite film without a question. When producer Alan J. Pakula and director Robert Mulligan approached Peck about taking the role as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, Peck agreed to read the book. He stated, I got started on it and of course I sat up all night and read straight through it. I called them about 8 o'clock in the morning and said, when do I start? Peck did eventually request changes so that the film deviated somewhat from the book, mainly showing more scenes of Peck in the courtroom than were in the original rough cuts, thus shifting the focus away from the children who had been the focus of the book and more towards Atticus Finch. Peck's performance received universal acclaim from critics. Variety wrote that the film was especially challenging for Peck, but that he had not only succeeds, but makes it appear effortless, etching a portrayal of strength, dignity, and intelligence. In 1999, 
the American Film Institute named Peck the 12th greatest male star of classic Hollywood cinema. So this, or I think for all regards, is the peak of Gregory Peck's career in terms of the Academy and the acknowledgement. Obviously, we have Peter O'Toole here nominated for Lawrence of Arabia as well. And Burt Lancaster from Birdman of Alcatraz. That's a film I've always wanted to see. Jack Lemmon of recent uh, The Apartment success. You know, it's this huge, huge men here, huge actors here. And it's hard not to like immediately go right to Peter O'Toole and be like, this is one of like the greatest film characters ever created and performed. But I also, like, I can't deny, I mean, Atticus Finch is also one of the most iconic characters, and he originates from a book, but I think most people remember the film more than they actually remember the book. Um, but what what do you think? I mean, we haven't talked too much about To Kill a Mockingbird. What are your thoughts on Gregory Peck's performance, and what do you think about the, the film overall? I mean, it's fantastic. It's a great performance. He get, delivers some of the some of the best monologues and speeches and film he his command of his voice is so great it's uh it's a an amazing performance and it's unfortunate that O'Toole went up against that when he gives his own career performance and the unfortunate part about O'Toole is he never won an Oscar he was nominated 8 times and could never come out on top and 2002 the academy honored him of an honorary award for his entire work but O'Toole uh, he kind of was like, I, I don't really want it. Uh, and thought he was still in the game and that there was more time to win the lovely bugger outright. So he believed probably up, up until the end of his life that he probably could have won another award, but he did get an honorary award, which is still an amazing feat and technically does still make you an Academy award winner. Uh, but he never won a competitive Oscar and just every time just ran into a buzzsaw. So yeah, he, Gregory Peck beat him out and then Rex Harrison beat him out uh and Rex Harrison's performance of My Fair Lady Peter O'Toole and Beckett uh John Wayne and True Grit beat him out in 69 Marlon Brando and The Godfather De Niro and Raging Bull Ben Kingsley and Gandhi Forrest Whitaker and The Last King of Scotland he just kept running into like the iconic performances and like the best performance of like these actors careers and that are very revered and he just never got what he deserved and and how good he truly was as an actor. So it's unfortunate that he had to go up against all that. Um, Peck deserved the award. Um, It's kind of hard to deny that. Yeah. You know, maybe I would have been the rebel who voted for a tool, but Peck was definitely going to win that year. I mean, it was such a great performance. I mean, watching the video of him accepting and winning the award, you can clearly tell how excited the room was that Gregory Peck was going to walk away with best actor that night. I mean, this is the 60s, too, where race relations are being brought up and they're so prevalent in, in society. And, and it fits perfectly in terms of where America is at, the struggles that uh, people are experiencing in the country and how this definitely white savior figure is just kind of comes in and, and is kind of I mean, that's a very harsh way of, of calling Atticus Finch. I think there's a lot more complex character than just calling him a white savior. But I think it's kind of interesting because you could even look at. Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia as being a white savior in a way, but he's, he's the failed white savior. He's the guy who thinks he can go in and he thinks he can save these people. He think he, he thinks he can end the world and have peace for all these tribes, but he's foolish. He's yeah. selfish. And there's that, no saving in that movie. Exactly. And, and maybe that's also why 
people don't want to you know vote for this because it's a darker film it's it's a tragedy it's much more of a of a person who thinking they can achieve this great height but absolutely fails and and doesn't even know who he is as a person while Atticus Finch from moment one knows exactly who he is and and how his own kind of morals and his opinions will kind of strike through the public's eyes and the town's eyes so it makes sense I think from a pure character and story standpoint as well Best director went to David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia. This is Lean's second and final Academy Award after previously winning for The Bridge on the River Kwai in 1957. In 1991, shortly after Lean's death, Hugh Hudson, who directed Cherries of Fire, Best Picture winner from the 80s, wrote a tribute to the director in Sight and Sound. In it, he asserts, born in the Edwardian era, Lean experienced firsthand the decline of the British Empire he lived through two world wars and matured as an artist during the 50s when Britain was being forced to re-examine her new role. His natural taste was for a mixture of the 19th century novel and landscape painting of the same period, something he never tried nor wanted to change, but having grown up during the demise of British influence in the world, he also had an acutely critical view of British society. So Lean's work contains an interesting paradox, the strong visual and literary, literary legacy of British culture, which he loved and understood so well, combined with biting insights into the ludicrous aspects of a nation being forced to accept a less important role in the world. A perfect example of this ability to illustrate Britain's dilemma is the portrayal of the colonel in the bridge on the River Kwai. Here is a man using the military discipline that was the result of 100 years of British tradition to survive the hardships, torture, and, and degradation of being a Japanese prisoner of war. Yet, whose addiction to that same discipline and tradition has turned him mad. The man is both a hero and a fool, a remarkable device to illustrate the state of Britain as she clung to meaningless tradition in a futile attempt to save her identity in the face of declining power, which is a beautiful way of talking about Lean and his approach to not just Bridge, but also Lawrence of Arabia and his own critique on his own country involvement in the world at large. Uh, so really poignant and exactly what we have been talking about with this movie, with identity and the what what is a name, how you're know, choosing a name, who you fight for, this and that of Lawrence of Arabia, and going back to our discussion of to kill a mock, uh, not to kill a mockingbird, the bridge on the river Kwai. He's a perfectionist, it feels like, and he's someone who wants something to be so authentic and from. What I've read and, and hearing Spielberg talk about him and how he was so reverent and, and so, he knew so much about so many different things, he very much felt like a historian filmmaker, a filmmaker who loved history so much and wanted to not only accurately show the history, but also create a really compelling story with compelling characters. And I think he's one of the finest directors that we've probably have seen so far on our journey here. Before we get on with the big one, I'd like to take this opportunity to level, you might say. To speak for just a second to us, we in the picture business. I, for one, am frankly a little tired of all of the talk about editorials, quote, what's wrong with Hollywood, unquote. I'm sick about hearing of runaway productions and costs and the star system and how we need government subsidies. I know it, and you know it, but we need a good pictures. 
And the way to get good pictures, as I rather, rather obliquely hinted earlier in the evening, is to get back into the Mona Lisa business. Individual pictures, handmade with love and passion and care by individual picture makers. Not by banks or committees or accountants or lawyers or office boys or boards of directors who are really in the real estate business, but by picture makers. Now tomorrow morning, a freckle-faced boy is going to throw a newspaper on your front lawn. And when you turn to the entertainment section, there will be an ad which reads, the best picture of the year. We are about to write that ad now. And to help us write it, we decided on a French housewife born in Tokyo. Naturally, we had our choice of all of the French housewives born in Tokyo. But since this show calls for an Oscar winner, we picked the girl who hit the Academy Daily Double. First for her performance in To Each His Own, and then The Heiress. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Olivia de Havilland. Tonight, we will give you a brief peek at scenes from those films nominated for Best Picture of 1962. They are Lawrence of Arabia, a Horizon Pictures Limited Sam Spiegel David Lean production, Columbia, produced by Sam Spiegel. <laughs> the Longest Day, Darrell F. Zanuck Productions, 20th Century Fox, produced by Darrell F. Zanuck. Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, Warner Brothers, produced by Morton da Costa. <laughs> Mutiny on the Bounty, an Arcola production, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, produced by Aaron Rosenberg. <laughs> to Kill a Mockingbird, a Universal International Pakula Mulligan Brentwood production. Universal International, produced by Alan J. Pakula. <laughs> the winner is Lawrence of Arabia, Sam Stevens. Well, I mean, what else is there to say, Ben? What else is there to say? Well, let's give some stats and figures about Lawrence of Arabia. It currently has a 93% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of a 9.27. Uh, the top critic percentage is the 92, with the average crop top critic rating a 9.2. Audience score is a 93, with an average of 4.49 out of 5. IMDb gives it an 8.3. So again, that IMDb number is kind of key when we're, you know, versus like Rotten Tomatoes. So the top three films of IMDb of the 35 we've watched, it goes Casablanca at an 8.5 and then Tied at an 8.3 is The Apartment and Lawrence of Arabia. So we are talking again about one of the best of the best films critically rated. And on Metacritic, it has a 100 it ran for 222 minutes of total length, and it won seven Academy Awards out of 10 nominations. 
But, John, I think what people want to know is what did we rate Lawrence of Arabia? I gave Lawrence of Arabia a 92 out of 100. A very high score for me. I think when you kind of compare it to other films, there's Best Years of Our Live at a 95, The Lost Weekend at a 94, and The Bridge on the River Kwai a 97, which comparing to David Lean films, I think I just prefer the setting of The Bridge on the River Kwai. I prefer the kind of uh, mix of uh, American military and the British and just all all the messiness of that film I really love. But Lawrence of the Arabia is exactly what I want in a film, and especially what I want in a big epic. It, it shows a new location. It feels exotic, and it feels like it's really taking me on a journey. But it also has really compelling characters, and it has a real respect to where it's supposed to be taking place and a real respect to the people and to the culture. And not only that, it has a very compelling character in Lawrence and a character that's not black and white. I hate films where the moment you meet our character, you know exactly the way the story is going to go. You know the exact way the story and the character's actions will progress. But with Lawrence, he is such a questionable author, right? He's such a questionable character that we follow because one, you don't know what he's going to do next. And, and two, you don't really know sometimes why he's doing the things that he's doing and I think because sometimes Lawrence doesn't even know he's trying to follow this like internal voice that he has but he's so lost it's just making him more lost in the depths and I think this film is it's one of the best like psychological analysis of a character that I think I've ever seen the way it takes him throughout his journey through the ups and the downs and and leaving us with a very satisfying ending to the film, yet still keeping it open-ended, I think is such a hard thing to do. It's something you rarely, rarely see. And, and I really adored this film. And in terms of any of the negatives, I think you could probably cut 10 minutes from this film and it wouldn't really change too much of the pacing. Uh, obviously, it's a four-hour film, so there's a lot to work with here. But there is a big story to tell. And there's not much that I think is is in the way here you know I, I really really loved Lawrence of Arabia I'm happy I own it on 4k and Ben tell me what did you give Lawrence of Arabia I gave Lawrence of Arabia a 96 so that was my original rating for this movie I decided that I'm just going to keep it as is my biggest gripe is which I said pretty much off the top was the runtime and I love the I love long movies I really have no issue with a four-hour movie it's just I can't I didn't get to see this movie in the theaters like it was intended and I think that watching it at home it's really hard to sit through a four-hour movie and the comforts of your home and not at a theater where it's meant to be seen it should be seen on a big screen so it's uh, like unfortunate I'm taking away points for that but it kind of is part of the whole viewing experience. I think that the brown facing of the characters is not great. So I guess I, I'm going to take off a point or two for that as well because it's unfortunate. And I know of me today, there'd be some care. At least I hope there would be some care into who plays the characters. But this movie is amazing. I mean, it is one of the better films to be made from a technical achievement standpoint. It is so superior that it, it insane beyond insane accomplishments a tool is amazing omar sharif is a star 
in this movie. It has so many great lines. The screenplay is solid all around. Again, the cinematography is fantastic. So this movie is one of the best. To put into context, like I gave Bridge on the River Kwai a 97. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess the Bridge on the River Kwai, I like it a little bit more. I think that it's a tighter film. And I don't think that's a bad thing for Lawrence of Arabia. It's just the way that it's told and the way it's crafted. Uh, but it's certainly one of the better films to ever be made. I don't think it's really hard to disagree with that. So a 96 felt right for me and, and where it should be. So out of the 35 films, our average rating, John, you have a 73.48, so a 73.5, and I'm at a 76.4. But we got to answer that question, and is Lawrence of Arabia worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1962? Of course. Come on. <laughs> of course. I think yeah, it's absolutely. still one of the biggest achievements in filmmaking ever. And I think that's not something that I obviously made up. I think people generally agree with that. I think when you watch this movie, it's it it just doesn't feel real. It feels like how did someone even achieve this? It does feel so large and hard to like understand and maybe that's why it was kind of hard to break down and and visually just interpret the film the first time I watched it because it is so grand. It's so big. And we've already seen filmmakers kind of cheat up until this point. You know, and I think The Greatest Show on Earth is a film that I called out as a joke with all the, the matting and, and the pre-green screening that they have in that film. But it it shows. It shows how much David Lean cares about its, his subjects and it cares about his setting. And I think it perfectly shows on film and I mean, this film is gorgeous. The 4K restoration is incredible. It's one of the most beautiful restorations I've ever seen. And this movie is is incredible, flat out. Yeah, I, I mean, you pretty much nailed it around the head. This is worthy. It, it, the definition of Oscar worthy is this movie. It it does everything right. It, it's an achievement. It's great. And um, I'm thankful that. I have seen it and I've grown a huge appreciation for it because I can definitely remember and know that the, the reason why I put together this best picture list and why I want to watch it. This is one of those movies. This is a movie I hadn't seen before. This is a movie I was like, damn, like that feels like integral to the history of cinema. And that feels like a movie I should see that I should know how, like I should know how it works. And the story and I'm so glad that I do know it now and I know it so intimately having me able to talk about it uh I mean we I thought when I, <laughs> it was funny because I mean we can go on and on talking about this movie but when we were we're talking about it during this podcast our conversation was way different than what we normally have done we normally go like through scenes and specific shots and but really we just captured I think the essence of the film and how great it is and uh you're about to do something I think that's going to like bring a little tear to my eye because I've been like waiting for you to do this, but go ahead and explain to the audience what you are holding right now. So I have this uh, 100 movie bucket list here. Uh, it contains not really any specific list of 100 films, but it's just what they call essential viewing. And I think I have about 15 left. Uh, they're all from different years, um, but I'm officially going to scratch off. Lawrence of Arabia. Oh it, I've been wa wanting to know what's <laughs> behind that. I was staring at that thing in, in the poster in John's apartment. Like, what's behind that scratch off? What does the Lawrence of Arabia one look like? I kept being like, John, I can't wait until we watch this movie. I can't. And I want to watch it with you, but 
circumstances and stuff. We didn't get to watch it together, but I'm really happy with the discussion. So, John, tell me what's behind the little scratch off of Lawrence of Arabia on that poster. So it's exactly what you would imagine, and it's the beautiful sandy hills. I can't show you because of how big this thing is, but it's <laughs> the beautiful sandy hills of Arabia. And it's a perfect image to summarize this film and the amazing setting. Wow, it must feel so good to like scratch that off. It's like a totally new poster that you have uh, <laughs> now to hang it's up. It's been on there for so long, and I've always known how long this movie is. And it's it's probably like one of the my favorite films to probably scratch off here because of just how big it is. And like you said, it feels great understanding and knowing a film so much now, and not purely just based on its it's you know significance historically and significance with filmmaking in general it it just feels great knowing more about this subject as well like it's a subject that I was so blind on and really knew so little about and all the intricacies and, and learning more about the specific tribes that Lawrence meets and his relationship with them is I think this is a film essentially what I'm trying to say is a film that everyone should watch and I think it's a film that I think a lot of Americans should watch nowadays because it's about opening yourself up to different opinions and different cultures and, and, you know, really trying to not say one opinion is correct. Right. So it's, it's such a broad film. If you look at it that way, even though it's so hyper-focused and, and, sp- and specific on a certain subject and time period, but yeah, I'm just so happy uh, we got to do this. Yeah. I'm so happy too. I think that's great. It makes me want to talk about just the, industry at large and and where it is today because you're right this is a movie that should be essential viewing for film fanatics for for audiences Uh, I think there's a lot to appreciate and to get from this movie but that is for another podcast for another day so any final thoughts on Lawrence of Arabia or the 35th Academy Awards John no prisoners no prisoners nothing is written thanks for listening I'm Ben and I'm John and, and this, this is, is worthy. worthy. He was the most extraordinary man I ever knew. Did you know him well? I knew him. Well, nil nisi bonum. But did he really deserve a place in here? Lord Allenby, could you give me a few words about Colonel Lawrence? What, more words? The revolt in the desert played a decisive part in the Middle Eastern campaign. Uh, Yes, sir, but about Colonel Lawrence himself. No, no, I didn't know him well, you know. Uh, Mr. Bentley, you must know as much about Colonel Lawrence as anybody does. Yes, it was my privilege to know him and to make him known to the world. He was a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior. Thank you. He was also the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. You, sir, who are you? My name is Jackson Benton. Well, whoever you are, I overheard your last remark, and I take the gravest possible exception. He was a very great man. Did you know him? No, sir, I can't claim to have known him. I once had the honor to shake his hand in Damascus, Knew him? No, I never knew him. He had some minor function on my staff in Cardo. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. 
You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthy submissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthy submissions at gmail.com.